You are listening to the British Motocross Show. To the British Motocross Show. There comes a time in your life, you gotta go for yours. Staying paid is like the battle of forevermore. I stay pedal to the metal foot on the floor. Earn my teeth on the streets, knocking down your doors. I'm by the dollar, like everybody ought to be. Don't burn nobody and make the money honestly. Up in your home with the internet technology. I get it anyway, despite the economy. See, I ain't coughing unless it makes a Welcome to episode two of the British Motocross Show. I'm James Burfield and we're back this week with Josh Spinks. Hey Josh. Hello. Good to have you in uh, in the studio. Brought to us this week by Talon, Even Strokes, PGVM, which is Paul Grimshaw Vehicle Movements, Epico and Peterline. All the last three are all kind of sponsors um, of Josh and they've been helping you out over the last few years. Yeah, PGVM has been a private sponsor now for a couple of years. Going into 2020, he's the main man behind the operation with something that we're setting up for this coming year. Apica have come on board and offered a great amount of help um, kit-wise and hard parts and all that sort of stuff. And then obviously Putaline, everyone knows what Putaline do, which is lubricants. Got a massive range and they're willing to back us 100%. So yeah, big thank you to those three guys. No, that's great. I mean, um, Dylan uh, and Code are obviously doing a really good job at Apico. They've been pushing quite hard in all different aspects of, of British Motocross and support quite a, a number of people. And then obviously John and Putelin, they're, they're great guys as well. So it must be nice having those people in your corner. 100%. Yeah. It's, um, without these guys, things are obviously a lot more difficult. So they're, they're taking the pressure off, but they've also got great products. So you've got to trust the product. You've got to know that it's going to benefit you as a team. It's going to benefit you as a rider. You know, oil for the for the bike maintenance is is absolutely huge. So a lot of confidence with them people, and obviously they're willing to help me as a rider, which also feels really nice because they've got a lot of choice. There's a lot of riders on the track, so to have that support from them is it's a nice feeling as well. That's very cool, and it's great to have people like that within the industry uh, and supporting you. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was. You know, before when you, we were just chatting, we were talking about sort of two thir- 2013 up till um, sort of today and, and, and what's been happening and everything else. But let's start on your, on your schoolboy career because were you one of those schoolboy lads which dominated 
everything and had lots of help or whatever. How how was your schoolboy career? Um, I did, yeah, I did quite a bit of winning when I was when I was younger. It all started with Coventry Junior Motocross Club. That was quite the, the sort of local club. So we we began there, and I think the first year on the fifty, there was literally only two of us in the race, but I came off better, so I won the championship the first year. Was um, Colin ha- Colin Hambridge still still there then? Um, he might have been in the paddock <laughs> with his son, but he yeah. wasn't running things. Uh, then. Okay, uh, I think it was the Keynes family, right? Um, They've disappeared recently out of the uh, motocross scene, but yeah. So I did Coventry for a good few years. I think I got onto the sixty-five, and then that's when we started doing the nationals. Started off with the BSMA. It took me a few years being within the nationals to win my first one in two thousand and five, which was my last year on the small one. I was riding with Mel Pocock. Okay, as well. Cool. So, managed to win the championship. Then, I think 2006, I went up to the big wheel. By 2007, my final year on the big wheel, I won the BSMA national championship again, which was awesome. Come up a little bit short on the BYMX because obviously the BY was the out and out British championship. I finished second that year, I think, to Sam Davis, which is another name. He's recently gone sort of missing from the sport. Well, yeah. not recently, like a few years ago now, but... He did uh, polish Tommy's helmet for a couple of years, I think. Or maybe a year. That sounds an interesting story. <laughs> I've done a bit of that as well. <laughs> no, jokes aside. So, yeah, I did I did a bit of winning on the 85. And, yeah, after that, it's that whole transition to the big bike. I was one of them people that spent a little bit of time on the 125. Yeah. Because I, was, I wasn't a really big, strong sort of do going up to the big bike. So I found a little bit of time on the 125, get used to that, that was fine. But then a couple of years later, while I was doing the BYMX, I had a really bad injury. Okay. I, um, I broke my C7 vertebrae in my neck. So how old was I then? Probably 16 or something like that. So that kind of put the brakes on just that little bit. I'd had quite a bit of momentum sort of up to that point. Redline motorcycles were always in the picture. So oh, all them cool. years on the big wheel, 85, when I won the championship, small wheel, 65. That year where I had my injury, on the, I was on the 250F at that point. Redline Motorcycles was behind the racing. And um, you've got bikes from Redline this year as well. So they've been with you quite a few years. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's amazing. It's almost like a full circle thing. So they was helping me for years and years through the schoolboy. Then I went on to different things, different paths with a few teams like the Suzuki, Neil Prince thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so I went away from Redline, obviously, at some points. But for the past couple of years, Redline have been involved with what we're doing regarding a bike dealership. Ah, oh, so, that's very cool. Yes, yeah, amazing. It's great. You know, Tim's a, a great person. And again, I'm always just thankful for these people that help me out. It, it goes a long way. Cool. So um, schoolboy career, then there was a couple of championships in there. Yeah. Yeah, BSMA. So it is a national championship. It's got a national stage. We'll take that one. We'll take it 100%. <laughs> I'm, 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 I know it's not the BYMX, which is the out-and-out British championship. But like I say, you look at the BSMA national championship now. Yeah. I had to, I had to speak to a few people to see if it's still running, you yeah. know, because it just has no status whatsoever. But honestly, back in 2005, 2007, the difference between the BUI and BSMA wasn't huge. No. So it was, a, it was a good achievement at the time, 100%. Yeah, I think, I think they went away for, for quite a few years. I mean, when I was, you know, this is a long time ago, when I was coming through, BSMA ruled. There was no other thing. You had the nationals, but they were usually put on by clubs and stuff like that. Yeah. And that was the, the kind of fastest 40. But the BSMA then just ruled. And then it seems that, you know, other things have popped up. But they seem to be making a bit of a resurgence over the last sort of four or five years. So that's good to see. Just on that note, I mean, looking back at your, your sort of schoolboy career in, in 
I, I like to talk to the to the you know talk about this with guests where we currently are with British motocross. I mean, do you think it's it's good enough for for kids coming through now? Do you, is there more available now to what to when you were in school, boys? Do you think have they got the tracks what you used to be on? Because it seems a lot of these championships are all riding the same tracks. Yeah, I mean that's a tough one. The sport as a whole, obviously the bikes are riding, the tracks, the preparation, the machinery used to to prep the tracks and i was just having a chat with someone before we came in here as part of your team that was saying like tracks that were around probably back then like your donnington parks that used to have a nice sort of track in the backfield mallory park was always a really nice local track for me these tracks have gone missing yeah so like you say that there's there's certain variables like some tracks come and go obviously fat cats now is offering people a really tough sort of deep sand track Yep. It's almost our version of the Belgium tracks. Yep. And, you know, it's quite central in the country. So I feel like track-wise, although some have gone missing, I think the the tracks now are a better preparation okay. for these bigger events. Yeah. But regarding support-wise, sort of, I don't know, maybe from manufacturers and stuff, I don't know. It's very hard for me to sort of comment on that because obviously I'm not a schoolboy anymore. No. But you do see, obviously, Judd and all these people that have yep. got a massive support now from KTM and they're taking on people in 50s, 60s and 85. I feel like it's improving, but maybe not at the rate of other things. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I've seen a, I've seen a couple of uh, different teams pop up this year. I know the whole shot have got a team now. Uh, SJP have got a team. There's, there's a few little sort of youth teams which seem to be popping up. I'm hoping that with the emergence or not the emergence, but the, uh, the British Youth Championship and the the British Motocross Championship kind of being one championship this year, the British Motocross Championship as it should be from from the ages up. I'm hoping that more people go there, like the look of it, teams invest more and get more sort of young people on bikes and people feel part of that whole process. So I think it's only going to be a, a good thing. I'm, I, I believe, you know, personally, sort of looking on the outside in, that everything's in place. We just need to get people working together a little bit more. Yeah. Fully, fully in agreement with that. I think that's going to be a big step forward to have the youth at the British Championship because we was all, you know, as, as riders in the British Championship at the moment, them young riders once, that's where they want to go. Yeah, that's their direction. So if they're part of the paddock, they start to see how things work. They feel a part of something. Uh, they're riding on tracks very similar to what we're racing on. That's only got to be a positive. Yeah. I mean, I look at it from the, the commercial aspect as well. Like if you've got somebody like Talon who are going there, they're going to be able to uh, service the, obviously the team's wills and, and the people that they sponsor, but also they're going to be able to educate the young kids coming through about products. And the same for everything from Dunlop to Michelin. It'd be great to see these industry brands and industry people back at a championship, which has got the best of the best in, in providing that support to, to those riders. There's no reason why every brand who operate in the UK can't use that now mm. as a, a place to, you know, to showcase their products and service people and, and, and grow those products into those people as well. Yeah. Like you say, it's almost being able to give people different knowledge, like say about the products and stuff. How cool would it be for a schoolboy dad to all of a sudden have this knowledge of how important certain tires are or how important the suspension is? Yeah, because how many, you know, we've all been, I've been there where my dad's probably been after more power, but it's probably got a scrub tire on or the suspension's not quite right. Yeah. So 
like you say, from an education point of view, I think that's that's quite a cool point to be able to tell these schoolboy dads, you've got a very good son or daughter at the moment, but these might be the steps you need to consider now rather than it being too late to get to this, this level, this yeah. main British level. So, yeah, from an ed- education point, that would be something that uh, is probably missing a bit at the moment. But I think there's very, there's a good, you know, there's the space for that. That could definitely work. And on the on the last podcast show, I spoke to um, Tom Neal, who spent, we were, we were talking about 125. Obviously, you took that plunge into to riding the 125. Do you think that that is the, the stepping stone kids should go from an 85 to 125 before they hit 250? I think um, each ride is very different. So I feel some people are ready to take that jump straight to the 250. I feel like you have to be quite strong to do that because all of a sudden you've got a heavier bike. There's, there's engine braking, there's all these things. I listened to the Tom's podcast and I think it was 100% right with what he said. When you're up riding a 125, it's like a, it is like the 85 but bigger. So you're quite comfortable with that straight away and you can't cheat the bike. You have to use the right gears. Okay. You know, you have to be riding the bike and, and learning things while you're riding the bike. With a four-stroke, you can become that little bit lazy and, you know, just use third gear in a corner because you I can like, go around. The, I like four strokes. Yeah, Gosh. a lot of people do, especially the four. <laughs> when you're 44 and you're fat, it's great. Yeah, you can just keep that thing in third gear the whole <laughs> way around. But that, that, no, that's that's very true. You've gone from an 85, a successful 85 rider, you know, has to work the bike to get the most out of it. I'm not saying you don't have to work a 250F, but I think people come up a little bit unstuck because all of a sudden you can use a lot less gears. Yeah. On a, on a 125, you've got to be running it like an 85. It's as simple as that. So I, I didn't have a full season on it. I just had the whole winter. Yeah. From, say, when the championship finished in September, I got straight on a 125, or probably before the season finished, actually, thinking okay. back. So I was still racing the 85. I had a 125 just for a bit of practice, and I ran it most of the winter. And then my first year was on a 250, yeah. But I did have that sort of crossover phase where I rode the 125, and it definitely helped me. Well, that's, in, that's really interesting. Something which I'm kind of passionate about is, you know, the development of, of British motocross and kids coming through because the last couple of years I spent quite a lot of time at MXGP and I've seen other countries advance uh, quite rapidly. Yeah. But that, that stream of British talent seems to have, have kind of died down a little bit, especially when you start, you know, I see what people share on, on social media and stuff. And when you start to see programs from the 80s and 90s and you see the riders in there, even the 2000s, you start to see the riders in the depth of the fields, not only in the British Championship, but the riders coming through. And uh, we just haven't got that, I don't believe, we, we haven't got that coming, you know, coming through at this moment in time. It's about what can, what can be done to, to improve, you know, riders coming through and, and having that support and, and, and bringing a little bit more money back in, into the industry to enable, uh, you know, it's, it's an expensive sport, we all know, but I, I feel that opportunities aren't as rife as what they were um, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Like say, manufacturer-wise, it's great to see that they're, they're making the effort. Like you said, the, a little bit with the KTM Orange Brigade, is it? Is yes, it what that's right. Yeah. 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 So that's nice. So that is like, they're starting to support people on, you know, 50s and, and 65. I think Rob Daly is like an auto rider. So he's getting great support. He's one of the best riders in the country, but he is getting almost sort of direct help from the wow. manufacturer. That's very cool. Through Judd. So it's, yeah. it's like, yeah, I feel like the, the manufacturers are starting to, to get involved a little bit. But like you said, with other countries, like, I don't know for sure, but I hear like places like France and all that sort of stuff, 
other countries, they have help on the government, maybe? They do, yeah. You know? Yes. And, and They've got we, a great structure in place. Yeah, so we... Even Mexico, believe it or not. Mexico, that's yeah. a surprise. But <laughs> it just shows that our country just does not support it anywhere near that. And if you've got the support of your government, you know, and even the schools, if you want to reach a high level, you probably have, well, you have to write during the week. Yeah. Because other people are. So if your school is making it hard work, and I know people struggle with this, to get out midweek, do some extra training and stuff, it's not easy for you, is it? No. Because you're not getting the bike time and stuff. So I think, like you say, budget's one thing, 100%. We need budget. We need the manufacturers making this pathway. Yep. You know, you're a talent. Let's get you from here to here. 100%. But I do see that being, they're being quite proactive with that, trying the different things. But I feel like, yeah, the, the, the government will never help over here. But how cool would it be if they did? Well, for instance, uh, I know this from having worked with a, a Swedish company. They take the, the top six talents from Sweden and they basically put them into a school. So they you know, work with their education, make sure that they're able to read and write yeah, and yeah. update their social media without spelling mistakes and you know, things like that. But also make sure that you know, they, they may not make it. So they need to be prepared for that. But also they teach them mechanics, they teach them everything. So if you don't, you know, they, they'll give you the best chances possible of, of making it as a rider. But if not, you know how to prep, mm-hmm. set up a bike, you know, yeah. that type of stuff. So they take the, t- you know, top six. Imagine if we'd done that in the UK where top six riders coming through each year had that school, a motocross school for support with education and riding. I think that is amazing because, like you just said, something to fall back on. So it's all right being good at what you do, which is ride a bike. But things happen. So if all of a sudden your path is cut short, then like say, at least these guys are getting some support to fall back on something. You know, certain riders, not necessarily the top riders, but they, they probably have nothing to fall back on, which is quite scary because where do you go from there? Yeah. You know, well, I, anything can happen. You're in a, you yeah. know, we're in a sport where, um, you know, anything can happen. You can plan the best you can, in it, but sometimes things go wrong. Yeah. Exactly. Just little niggling injuries. Um, some injuries can be more serious than others, and sometimes it's not possible to carry on. It's as simple as that, but um, amazing. If our country was to do something like that, I honestly can't see it. But yeah, I think that would fix so many things. And I think education is is a big, big thing. Obviously, listening to Tom's podcast as well, your, your first podcast, it's quite funny because we've done it a similar way. So okay. I... I I used to do my GCSEs. I always worked quite hard at school. Family-wise, it was like, do well at school. You can have a Wednesday off sort of thing. So I always had that um, in front of me. So yeah, I did the GCSEs. And then I, I stayed on to do my A-levels as well. Kind of, because so, I didn't want to rush into work. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, wanted, <laughs> I don't blame you, mate. No, it's overrated. I, I was happy riding my bike and obviously putting all my focus into racing. So I just thought, right, I'm clever enough to do A-levels. Yeah. It'll buy me another year or two to yep. do some more training and sort of chase the dream, if you like. So that's the direction I went. I've got A-levels in physics, maths. Jesus um, Christ. Yeah, honestly. I'm an educated idiot, really. But Wow. Yeah. There so amazing. But like I say, you bring up the point of education, and I'm fully 100% behind you. Okay. So um, it, was that instilled by your parents? Were your parents like kind of pushed you to say, right, okay, you, you have to do well at school? Very split. So my mum and dad split up when I was at a young age, two years old. So I used to live with my dad, mainly weekends when we go racing and then sort of midweek, see my mum a little bit. So yeah. two very different people. I can see why it didn't work. <laughs> Let's say that. But my yeah. dad would say, as long as you can count your money sort of thing and, you know what I mean, that's good enough. Yeah. Like you race, do what you enjoy. And then my mum was very much like, 
well, well, do you want to go university? If you're well-educated, it will lead on to better things and better jobs. And she supported the racing, but it was very, I had both sides of it. Yeah, that's good. And then I just put myself somewhere in the middle, I think, yeah. where I was happy to race and do what my dad said, just concentrate on that because I really enjoyed it. But another part of me just followed the education route and I was smart enough and to go all the way through to A-level. And I actually was considering going to university. I looked through some universities and stuff, but that's where the racing took over a little bit. I thought if I go to university, I'm not going to be... That's the end of racing. Yeah. yeah. Which, not 100%, because I think it's Lewis Toombs okay. that, that did the whole university thing. Ah, right, okay. And, you know... He's still I didn't know doing, that, so that's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 99% sure on that, 95% sure. But, you know, and he, and he kept things going. He made it work for him, and, you know, he's still doing well on the track. So yeah. it shows that it can work. But I wasn't 100% sure on the uni- university course that I was looking at. So I just thought for how much money is involved and stuff now, I'll just carry on with my racing. And, yeah. You know, I've always worked though. I've always worked through my, my career. That's cool. Um, one thing which I wanted to touch upon was going back to when you were 16, you said you had quite a, a, a big injury, which was on the neck. And that must have been quite frightening. Yeah. Yeah, super, super scary at the time. So it was a compression fracture to the C7, which is the lower vertebrae in the neck. Um, and it happened at a track called Finningley in, in Doncaster. Uh, I've so, been there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was just a, a practice day, uh, from what I remember, maybe on a Saturday or something. Just come around a, a really fast corner, the back wheel swapped out, gripped, shook me over the bars. And um, where they dug the drainage basins next to the track, um, I landed headfirst in that. So it was, it was a big impact. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and like you say, very scary because especially when like in the hospital, I think what they said was I was wearing a neck brace at the time and they asked me about my equipment I was wearing. Was that stuff. a Liat neck brace? It was a, the very first Liat neck brace that came out because um, at one point, I believe uh, the championship said you have to wear one. Okay. I think that was a thing. I can't remember what it was, one of the championships. It probably never actually came into to play. But, but they I tried to push. They, yeah, they tried to push that. So I... I opted for the net brace. I got quite comfortable with it straight away. Yeah. But they basically said in the hospital that if I wasn't wearing this net brace, things could have been very different. As in, I've got a broken neck. But they suggested that it could have been really, really serious without that. That's what they said. Wow. And they said that to my dad. Um, so and, yeah. And when do you, you still wear a net brace now? Yes. Yeah, I've worn one ever since. Because bits of information like that with me sort of stick in my head. Yeah. So I've just I've linked it that that neck brace that day could potentially saved my life. Yeah, from a medical professional. You know they don't know the sport all that well, but they just know it restricted the motion. Yeah, in such a way that it compressed rather than <clears throat> obviously snapped, which is not a nice thing to say. No, but um, yeah. So from that day, I know that that helped me in that injury, or at least they said it did. So that's in my head, and I'm I'm confident and happy with it. Plus. I've got a little bit more length on my neck, so all these, <laughs> all these people that sh- maybe struggle like looking up when they're riding and stuff, it's not a problem for me. Plenty okay. of Is that through exercise? What, the, the, the neck, neck thing? <laughs> ah, <laughs> genetic. I've probably got an extra vertebrae or something. Uh, you don't need that one then. It's fine, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's re- actually, it's really interesting to hear. I mean, so, so how did you recover mentally from that? Because that's quite a big, big thing to go through, especially at 16. Yeah. It was like a delayed thing. Obviously, it shook me up at the time, but at that age and how much riding I've done previous to that and high-level riding. I just wanted to get back on it as soon as possible. But what I found was when I was racing, getting back into racing, and shortly after that was when I made the jump to do my first British MX2. 
Okay. So it all happened really quickly. Yeah. Because I was getting a little bit older and stuff. And what, what year was this, Josh? So I think 2010. I think I did it in 09, the yeah. injury. And then late 2010, I entered a last couple of Maxis British in MX2. Okay. I think I, at Farley, which might have been the last round or the last bit one round, I had like a 16th or something. So point scoring Straight riding. In, yeah, wow. which was great. But I was struggling mentally a little bit. Okay. Like I was riding a bit reserved <clears throat> in certain conditions. So that's where I said the whole delayed reaction sort of thing. I yep. got back on the bike as soon as I could. I was excited. But in a race situation, I just remember, I do remember it just holding me back just a little bit. Yeah. Confidence-wise, yeah, 100%. How long did it take you to recover from, from, from that impact, like physically? So from the day that I crashed, I think I was off the bike close to three months. And obviously okay. I had one of them neck supports. So you can't really get much range of motion. Um, you had to build things up quite slowly. They said it's not going to be as strong as it once was. Yeah. Um, Have you noticed a bit concern? anything? Do you still get problems with it? Or? Um, touch wood, no. In 2013, I had a quite heavy fall on my head. Canada Heights, maybe, something like that. Yeah. And it felt nasty. Like It felt just like it did like the first time. And I, I went straight to the hospital after it. Yeah. And they just said, no, we can see where the damage has been done previously, but there's no more damage sort of thing. And that's touch wood, 2013. Or it might have been before that. No, I think it was 2013. Um, no problem since. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, um, before we ask any more uh, questions, maybe we'll, we'll hear from our sponsors who could be Lee Hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we'll be back in five. Talon wheels have been iconic in the industry for over 30 years. Designed, built, and manufactured in the UK, Talon wheels, sprockets, footrests, and clutch baskets are used by professional riders like Jason Anderson, Zach Osborne, and Sean Simpson. Head over to www.talon-eng.co.uk for more info. Liat, protecting riders from head to toe. Check out liat.com for more. You are listening to the British Motocross Show. Just want to thank our uh, show sponsors. If you didn't already know, uh, we have Talon, Even Strokes. And if you listen to last week's podcast show, Even Strokes is uh, a new uh, web shop, which is uh, available throughout Europe, um, selling things like Alpine Stars. Lots, lots of really cool stuff. Then we've got, obviously, Josh Spinks in, in studio uh, this week. He's got some, some personal sponsors, which have been helping him over the past few years. Uh, they are PGVM, which is Paul Grimshaw Vehicle Movements, Apico, and Putaline, which are, are very well-known names within the British industry. Welcome back, Josh. It was interesting hearing about, obviously, the neck and, and, and LIAP braces, because obviously there's a lot of talk um, about the braces currently uh, and always ongoing, because I, I have this kind of mindset where people say, oh, yeah, if, if you wear a, a neck brace, then you help break your collarbone or whatever. And my, my mindset is I'd rather break my collarbone than my neck. Yeah. I mean, anyone in the right mind would think the same. I think there's, there's so many variables. You, you look at the racing now, and it's true, not, not that many people are wearing them, especially in the GPs and all these things. But there's an there's argument to, to suggest, I don't want to go into it too much detail, but no. one of the trainers um, suggests that when you're wearing it, if you say, for instance, you've got a shortish neck, um, you're getting the right sort of technique over the front of the bike, say, for instance, down a hill, and you might be restricted to lift your head okay. and look where you go. But like you say, it's, it's Tim Geyser, who's obviously world champion. Yep. He wears a neck brace. Yep. Not a layout one, but he wears a neck brace. Yeah. So 
you can't argue Sean Simpson. Yeah, he wears a net brace. He's wore a, a, a net brace, brace. Yeah, for yeah. yeah, forever. Yeah, so I think since the start, actually, that the, the braces came out. He's he's worn one. He's always because yeah. if it gives you that confidence, like it has with me, that I'm doing everything I can to make myself as safe as possible, you find that little bit more, maybe aggression in you. Yeah, you, you push that a little bit harder. So it's whatever works for the individual. But yeah. the interesting thing is you've got 40 people on the line. You've got 40 very different people. Yeah. So you choose your path and the Liat Brace is the one I've chose and I continue to use. Yeah, and it works for you yeah. as well as it does for other people. Yeah. Confidence-wise, yeah. yeah. Ah, that's good. Um, so, let's, so the schoolboy career was good. You picked up a couple of championships, picked up a couple of injuries, which were not so good. And you came into the MX2 ranks, but then you kind of, things sort of changed for you um, at home kind of at that point, didn't they? Yeah, so obviously 2010, my first um, couple of rounds in the British Championship. I remained in that for 2011. I actually went up to the 450 okay. um, quite early. I was, I was young then, so sort of 18 or whatever. But yeah, by the time we got to 2013, it's a, it's a tough one, really. I was obviously supported with my dad. He, he was all in. Yep. Like there, was a, you know, there was enough finance there and passion and all that sort of stuff to get me where I... I'd, got through my schoolboys and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, there's, there's other stresses and stuff that was in the background at the time. So budget-wise, things were maybe becoming a bit more of a struggle. Yeah. You know, that's half the reason I went up to the 450 quite early. Yeah, because 250 is a lot of money to get the to engine where and, it is yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, budget was a bit of a, an issue. And then he was with him and my mum split up when I was younger, obviously. I've touched on that already. Yeah. So... I had a stepmom. She was, you know, trying to put the brakes on things a little bit because of the budget, which I now I'm a bit older and more mature, I see. Yep. But when I'm obviously in that house and you're really passionate about something and you've you've got your goal and you you're right up there with the British sort of lads, yeah. And then someone's trying to put the brakes on it. Um, maybe I didn't react in a very nice way. <laughs> I was a bit stressy and all the rest of it. And, you know, maybe right. the relationship between me and my stepmom yep. at times was a bit you know, iffy, a bit up and down. And then that put more stress on my dad. And, you know, we just got in this whirlwind of shit, basically. I don't know if I can swear, but... Nice, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, we can that's use absolutely that. Fine, but yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. And um, basically, I had to... I was I was put out of the situation. I had to leave the house. Simple as that. Okay. Sort of mid-2013. And, went... and your dad didn't kind of finish that, so your dad didn't wasn't doing racing with you then? That that's point. it, yeah. It was all gone. It's It's a tough one to even look back on really but yeah i had to go and live with my mum yeah which is fine i've got a good relationship with my mum um like i said i think it was just the stresses of things not quite being in a great place financially my stepmom and my relationship are up in the air it's putting more stress more stress more stress and it just got to the point where that was it that was the answer yeah so i was out the house um you know a bit of a fallout but obviously with that no sort of financial backing with my racing yeah that that that, that was left behind um which i was aware of my mum supported the racing but like i also said she was well into this education thing and if i wanted to go racing she'd support it simple as that not financially but she'd support she'd it as, a, going, as yeah. a parent yeah but she did say we sat down and we was discuss, discussing things and it was a hard situation at the time i i owned a bike at that time okay okay so there's a bit of a story behind that but i i had a 450 ktm that i paid for myself at that time yeah so although the finance had gone i had a bike to ride right okay i had a very very basic job no sorry at that time, I worked for my dad. So my job went as well. 
Oh, that's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> well, not would, awkward, was, but that's obviously yeah, uh, that, yeah, that, a bit of a kick in the balls. Yeah, yeah, everything. Because it was just, he got a sports bar, so I was working there, just yeah. like little shifts and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, sorry, I'm having to obviously think back, but at that time, I owned a 450 KTM, had a job, um, had a job that went. Yep. <laughs> uh, and that was it. And then... Okay, yeah, so you literally just stepped into your mum's, you just had a bike, no job. No nothing. job, nothing. Yeah, so I had to start things, and how old was I then? 20, 19, 20. So I had to find a job, and I found just a very basic, working for a clothing company with my friend Callum Swan, GD Clothing. So okay. I worked for I remember that, was it Getting Dirty? Getting Dirty Clothing, clothing yeah. yeah. And I was... I Is was, that still going? No. Bring it back. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. We had a lot of fun there, but, you know, I was... I was I got a job there. I was earning absolutely nothing, but it was kind of two, three days a week. Yeah. I had a bike, so I was still getting out on that. I was competing in the GT Cup at that time. Yeah, I remember the GT Cup. Because of, yeah, because Great of, series that was. Yeah, because of the injuries recently and the budget and all that sort of stuff. But 2013, I wasn't even doing the British Championship. GT Cup was my main championship. Yeah. The wheels had sort of fell off previously. So yeah, I, I got this bit of work at GD Clothing. I obviously got a little bit of money in. My mum for the first time, said, look, if you want to get to the track, I, I didn't have a van. She said, I'll buy you a van. Wow. But she said, that is it. Like, I'll get you the van. You can get to the track. As, as far as like finance that my dad used to do, it wasn't an option. No. Fair enough. She's but a, you got some sing- wheels. Yeah, she's a single lady. So yeah. I had my wheels. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. So I got the van, um, a VW. Well done, Mrs. Spinks. Amazing. Well, no, Mrs. Bonham. Oh, Mrs. Yeah, Bonham. Yeah, they split you. Yeah. yeah but- that's a different story. Oh, respect. But yeah, respect. Um, so I had my wheels. Um, I had a little bit of a job, if you like. Not a, not a proper one, <laughs> but something <laughs> to get a bit of money in. And then, yeah, I just continued to do the GT Cup. And I was getting taken to the races to start with until I got this van sorted out. Yep. I managed to com- compete um, the next couple of rounds of that. Didn't really have much money in the bank sort of thing, but I was making it work. Um, and then we got to Brookfort, which was, I don't know, probably like round four or five of the GT Cup. Yeah. And that bike that I own got stolen on the Friday night. Jesus. Yeah. So another kick in the gonads. Like, so basically, you managed to get a van and yeah. then lost the bike. Yeah, I had no bike. It was gone. And it's a cool story on that weekend is, um, so I woke up Saturday morning ready for qualifying because it was a two-day event. Yeah. Bike's gone. Obviously, emotionally, I'm like, oh my God, what do I do now? But Dominic Foreman, uh, okay, remember yeah. Dominic Foreman, yeah. Really nice guy, nice family. He was second to me in the championship at the time. And I was that obviously upset and cheeky and at the time to, to get myself a bike ready to line up in qualifying. I went up to Dom, who's second in the championship, and said, Dom, can I use your spare bike? And he said, yeah, get me the 350. What um, a guy. Amazing. You know, when I look, I look back and I think about it sometimes, I think, that is so nice. Because yeah. I knew him, obviously, I was racing with him. Yeah, but... But he didn't have to do he that. He didn't have to do that. And he gave me his, his spare bike and I beat him on it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could have been nice and let him win. No, exactly. <laughs> but no, I got the win that weekend and, and that led on to some pretty cool things. Like, it's such a roller coaster that year. Obviously. I can remember being it because MX Vice was really in the early stages. I think if that, if that was 13, then MX Vice only sort of found an 11. And I. I liked what Claudia was doing at the time with the GT Cup, which is why I heard of you. Because I think the GT Cup was the, the first championship where you start giving away stuff, like mm. giving away oils and giving away um, lots of different stuff and supporting. And maybe they, were, they weren't, but they just seemed to be doing a lot for the kids and stuff like that. So 
that's how I started following the series and getting interested in the series because I thought, ah, oh, this is really good. They're like giving back and, and everything else. And then I heard about your story because I can, I can remember the story, but because I didn't know you, I didn't know the, the truths behind it, you know, and, and that type of thing. Because obviously, you know what the internet's like and Facebook and uh, the motocross community, everybody has a different opinion and everything else, but it's good to get the side of the story. Yeah. Like you say, with the GT Cup, he was doing a great job at that time. It was a series I've probably had the most fun racing. Yeah. Because it wasn't, I was, I was, I'd done all the serious stuff and it, it fell to pieces, like I've touched on budgets, this, that, and the other. And I kind of dropped down to that. But it was, it was so fun. It was yeah. a two day um, format, which was nice. There was plenty of time on track. I was winning quite regular, which I hadn't done for a few years because nice. I was in at the deep end, you know, with all the top boys and all that sort of stuff. So, Getting back to winning again was also, you know, really, really nice. But sometimes I, I do believe, and I look back in my career, that sometimes you have to take a step back to then propel you forwards. Yeah. And that's exactly what that did. You know, I dropped down to that series. All these things happened to me in a short space of time, which was very hard mentally. Yeah. You know, to be somewhere that you've lived for X amount of years, a long time, to all of a sudden not living there anymore. Yeah. Sort of thing. Like at that age, the age of 20 or whatever. You know, you're just in that transformation to being an adult, really. Yeah. And being able to, you know, know that life isn't actually easy. <laughs> and you it kind of need a little, a little yeah. bit of support, not, not yeah, sort of, exactly. uh, kicks and, and kicking the balls. Yeah, and, and it hit me pretty hard. But yeah, I look back and it's, it's yeah, it's not, it's led to some good things, obviously, up to now. So yeah, difficult year. But um, yeah, a lot of strange things happened in 2013. And like I say, the support I received from being at absolutely rock bottom to actually being able to compete in the last round of the British Championship. Again, we were just talking before this. Yeah. So, at Farley Castle. So who, who, who kind of, um, when you lost that bike and from that point, who, who kind of rallied around you at that point to, to help you? So I was um, working at GD Clothing with a, a friend of mine called Callum Swan. Yeah. I've known him for loads of time now, seven, eight years. Hi, and Callum. Yeah, hi, Cal. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people know Cal because he's got like, such a crazy personality. Like, yeah. So, so funny. But he's very outgoing and he's got good contacts. He speaks to people. So, yeah. So he basically, when I had no bike, he had a, a bike and he wouldn't ride himself. He would give me his bike to go out practicing and stuff. That's, That's the cool. sort of friend he is. That's cool. Yeah. Amazing. So we did that a little bit. And then somebody came... Mick Extance. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Yep, he had the Endurance. Yeah, was it exactly. the, the tri- yeah, Adventure School That's yeah. right, yeah. He, he was Kawasaki at the time in Wales. He, he offered, like say, the experience, the Kawasaki experience. And he came to GD Clothing around that time when the bike had gone. Yeah. To, we wanted to distribute some clothing through what he was doing to yeah. get, get the brand out there a little bit and stuff. And we got talking and Callum being Callum, he's more, he's more confident person than I am, you know. Yeah. In a way. So he, he was chatting. Was maybe at that time, I've come out of shell a little bit. I'm a lot more confident now. But at that time, he, he spoke to Mick and said, look, this is Josh's situation. It is shit. He's got no bite. He's got potential. He's come from the British Championship. He's had to do this. He's probably mentioned things that happened at home and this, that, and the other. And Mick had bikes there. He had Kawasaki's. He had spare Kawasaki's. And, he, and Mick rang me, um, spoke to me and said, look, I've got a 450. Kawasaki, I've got a contact with Bridgestone, I've got Rock Oil. He said, let's just do something. Let's get you back racing. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah, amazing. Um, and like I say, where would I be without that? Who knows? <laughs> I probably wouldn't be racing. 
So yeah. So thanks to Mick Extance thanks and Callum for and Callum and Adam Extance's mixed son. Yep, uh, was uh, was similar age. So we become quite friendly and yeah. But basically, that got me back in the GT Cup, cool. um, and it got me in the next. I won the championship that year, the GT Cup, and it's because of that because I had a bike to ride. That's very very cool. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, but it it doesn't end there really so something else happened in 2013 I, I did the say the next two or three rounds on a mick excellence bike kawasaki yeah and then i was at fat cats practicing on a wednesday before one of the final rounds i think it was before sherwood yeah. gt cup and mick's bike started making some horrible noises on me um and i had the gt cup that weekend so panicking again i only had the one bike which yeah. is obviously better than nothing um how did it come about? I think I was just recently spoke to a company called SPS, yeah, which was suspension. Okay. Um, they knew that I was without a bike and they was trying to help me set up some training school just, you know, to gain a little bit of money. Yeah. Get myself back on my feet and stuff, a bit of extra cash. So I think it was those guys, like I rang them on the Wednesday and said, and they're also, they fix bikes. So that's the reason why I rang them. Okay. And said, look, this bike's, Sounding very poorly. I've got the GT Cup on Saturday. That's only two two days away. Do you know anywhere I can get a bike? SPS were also involved with Revo. Okay. Or kind of involved with Revo with the dyno in and stuff. Yep. So they rang them. They rang Revo and said, look, Josh is doing the GT Cup. His bike's pretty much shit its pants. Uh, Fat Cat's Wednesday. Um, have you got anything? Um, and again, they wanted to help me. I've never met the guys before. They didn't have a 450, but who was the team that I mentioned earlier? LPE, so it's Steve LPE. James. Yeah, obviously Steve James. He, Revo know him really well, so they rang Steve James. Have yep. you got a 450 Kawasaki that we can pick up for Saturday to race at Sherwood? And he said, yeah, I've got one of Anderson's bikes sat there, practice bikes. So I remember driving up to um, Steve James, yep. collecting the bike. Uh, never met Steve before. Really, really. good guy. Yeah, amazing yeah, great guy. guy. Loves and, motocross. And Miss from the paddock as well. Absolutely. And kind of shook his hand and like just surreal like in the workshop picking the bike up and then I chucked that in my van, drove straight to Sherwood. I hadn't met Revo at this stage. They met me there in their full setup. Yep. You know, the big lorry at the time, the big silver lorry and the massive awnings and I met Sam, Sam yep. Yates there. Uh, shook his hand and I just thought, wow, all these people that have got me here yeah, and it was only two days ago. I had one bike, the McExcellence bike, <laughs> that was knackered. Yeah, all of a sudden, this happened just through, like, say, contacts. Yeah, and people kind of wanting to wanting help. to help and understanding what I was going through, I suppose, at the time. Yeah, and yeah, we had a good weekend at Sherwood. I won the overall at the GT Cup, and then after that weekend, I think Mark and Sam liked me as a person. Yeah, they listened to my story just a little bit more, and this, that, and the other, and they said, right. Speak to Mick, obviously. Yeah. If he's happy for you to make a step up to joining us and and with the aim of doing a Red Bull national. Yeah. To get yourself back up to where you was. If he's happy to go ahead, we've we've got the bike for you. That's cool. And I spoke to Mick, he was absolutely ecstatic for me. You know, he didn't say, Oh no, 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 we've agreed to this. He was yeah. like, You do that. That's amazing. We wanted to be that leg up for you. Brilliant. And that's what happened. I, I got in with Revo. They offered me, it was my first sort of team ride, sort yeah. of thing, if you like, because they gave me all this kit and helmets and amazing bike. And, you know, the Revo have always been into 
getting a really nice bike built. Yeah, it was. You know, it was last minute chucked together, but this 450 Kawasaki was good. And I did a Red Bull National, I think, and I, I got a pretty good result straight away, I think. Sort of top 15 at the time, top 20, pretty good. Yeah. And then, like I say, that was getting towards the end of the year then. So I went to Farley Castle. We said, right, let's do a British Championship. I remember in qualifying, I just missed out on the Super Pole. That's okay. when they add the Super Pole. Yep. Uh, and that was top, was that top 10? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. So I qualified 11th. Yeah. Uh, so considering I haven't done the British for a couple of years and all that had happened to me, I thought, wow, this is, this is good. That's a great. And yeah. then it was a free race format. So the final race, I finished inside the top 10, I think. I had a 10th or something. That's good. That was rough, that track at the end of the day as well. Yeah, incredibly <laughs> rough. But it's such, a, it's such a wide track, but how does it get rough like all the yeah. way across? It's unbelievable. Did, did you like the track? Yeah. You, yeah. You did. It's so like you say, so different to anything else that we ride. Yeah. Any other track in the country, but there's something about it where you had to be quite precise. It could catch you out quite easily. You know, you got like roots in the wooded section and my style of riding's always been like upper gear, quite smooth. So I feel like that track suited me as a rider. So I got a lot of enjoyment from it. It was good. Is it, so, so tracks like that, is that sort of something that you'd like to see more of in the future? Yeah, I'm all about... Personally? Yeah, I'm all about sort of the variation, like have a sand track, but then have a hard pack track. Yeah. Like Fox Hill gets very much slated because it is grooved up, it's slaty, it's this, that, and the other. But so it's the same for everyone. Yeah. But as like you've touched on before, uh, especially in the last podcast, I think tracks maybe being a bit overused. Yeah. Because like, we have got different alternatives, but I'm all for variation. Yeah. Go to Farley, go in the woods, go over all that sort of stuff that we never do, but then go to Fat Cats. Yeah. Well, you've got Little Silver, which is going to be really round one. Yeah. So that's going to be great. And uh, yeah. it's not a new track. It's, it's been around for ages, but we've not yeah. seen it in a British Championship for a while. Yeah. I know there's a lot of, you know, quite a few riders that are really excited for Little Silver. I was speaking to Shipton at, at the track the other week at Fat Cats, and he was just buzzing about it because he, he rips around there. Yeah. But it's also a track that I'd go to and be quite confident because it's my sort of condition. Yeah. <clears throat> so like you say, these new tri uh, newish tracks for the British that are coming out the surface. I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, they're all towards the south of the country, but luck of the draw, I guess. Yeah, I, I remember. How can you was it in it? thirteen or I don't know if it was in thirteen or fourteen? But we were all complaining that everything was at north. Exactly. So, so how can you look at it and think, well, we need to make a track choice <laughs> for the country? Yeah, the, you don't. You you just you. You're doing it for the track. If yeah, it's down if it, the bottom, then so be it. My opinion is the best eight tracks. Yeah. Wherever, no matter where, they're, if, even if they're in the north or south, or yeah. just the best eight tracks. But like you say, don't have the same eight year on year. No. So if it's next year, they're all up north. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I can say this so confidently because I live slap bang in the middle of the country. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not the best person to speak about it. Yeah. It's not too much of a factor for uh, me. So I get, I get the travel side of it and budgets. And if people don't like it, move. Yeah, go to America where you do the national and you have to travel 10 hours to yeah. a track or 20 hours to a track. It could be worse. 100%. Sorry, I rudely interrupted you and we were talking about Farley Castle. Yeah, no, like I say, that was the last British that year, I think. So yeah, got a top 10 result, which was nice. My first max is back for a long time. Yeah. All the events that had happened, I got Revo behind me. Um, it changed for 14 a little bit because... Revo seen an opening in 
um, Hitachi. Well, it wouldn't have been Hitachi at the time. KTM UK, would it? Or is it Hitachi? Uh, it was Hitachi. I so think it was yeah, Roger Hitachi. McGee. Yeah, so Revo kind of joined, didn't it? Okay. If you remember, for yep, 2014. Yep, that's right, yeah. And they had Ben Watson and Sean Simpson. Okay. For 2014. Yeah. But Revo, they didn't leave behind dry. They said, look, obviously, you're not ready for the full British Hitachi team yep. where we're going. But we can pull some strings. We can get you a couple of bikes from KTM. We can sort of get you some One Industries kit, which we was using at the time, and just run like a bit of a satellite thing. Yep. And then going back to this SPS, which is a suspension, suspension dyno engine building facility, they kind of ran me. So it was, it was more I was running for SPS that year. Oh, that's cool. But Revo was still sort of in the picture, and it just allowed me to go to the track and go racing. Yeah. Because like I say, that budget that was so, there with my dad was still missing. <laughs> So within a year, you'd gone from having, moving out of your, from your dad, having just a bike with no van, to having a van with no bike, yeah. to then Mick Extant's helping you, yeah. which then led to Revo and Steve James putting you know, something together and riding Brad Anderson's practice bike, to then <laughs> having kind of a, the start of, the, of a team sort of kind of building around you. Is that with SPS? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. You could definitely see it that way. So Colin at SPS um, did a, so much for me, um, especially that year, 2014. He looked after the bikes at his workshop. He dynoed the bikes. He did the suspension. He drove me to the tracks and he had a sprinter, so it was a bit bigger. He had a compressor in it and all the things that we wow, needed. Wow, that's very cool. We, we was a team, really. He properly took you we under his We were a team, yeah. That's cool. And, and, you know, SPS hadn't really been in the British paddock. Uh, it, it used to do like the AMCA sort of stuff. Yeah. But it worked two ways. Like he was very open with me about it. Um, we're going to probably talk about social media a little bit, but sure. I, was, I got him a lot of work, a lot of work, so, which was good because I was getting some results. Um, and his stickers were on my bike. Yeah. I was active on social media and it, it was a full circle thing. So he was very happy with See you. my input. Um, yeah. And I was very happy with what he was doing for me. It just worked great. So you're able to give them a return and by, we won't talk about it now, but you're able to give them a return um, through the stuff that you do on social media. Yeah. Um, That's great. Amazing, yeah. And, and social media wasn't as big, obviously, no. a few years ago. And, and people now. were coming to him and saying that they knew of him because of yeah. you? Yeah, everyone obviously drops the name. Like if I'd seen someone at a track or, you know, got into a discussion about suspension because everyone talks about suspension. Yeah. Especially if you're a rough fat cats and someone's struggling, they're like, oh. Who does your suspension? Because obviously that's going to fix my riding. Yeah. Um, it helps. Yeah, it's just that problem. Yeah, it helps. But yeah, I, I, I obviously said SPS do my suspension and I'm very happy with it, which I was at the time. And then they'd ring up Josh. I seen Josh at the weekend. He said, like, the suspension's going to change my riding. And I'm, you know, can we book it in? And then Colin have mentioned it the day after. He said, oh, cheers for sending him. But yeah. then I remember after a few months, he, he he's obviously very happy and he said, look, it's we weren't talking figures, but he said, you bring in a lot of money for us. Thank you. That's wow. great. Yeah, amazing. But he was helping what I was doing. Yeah. So, brilliant. So, yeah, it worked quite nicely together. Yeah, really. So, so in 14, did you, did you continue to work with him and the team for the whole year? Yeah, that, that was 2014. Okay. So that's when we was on the KTMs. So from start to finish, that was us. That was our setup. And, and it, I say it was like, it sounds like it was a great sort of easy year, but there was still struggles i remember what did i have to do i think that van that i said that my mum had to get finance was hard for me yeah it didn't just disappear obviously 
And what, what about a job job wise? Were, were you working at that? Still at GD at still that time. Still at GD, okay. Yeah, because it's that balance, isn't it? I could have, I'm not work shy, I never have been. Because before it all um, went wrong at Dad's and all that sort of stuff, I was working at the bar, his bar. Yeah. I was always working, you know, from after my A-levels. Yeah. Part-time because you have to still have the time to train and all these things. Yeah. Um, but you were prepared to work. You did, I was prepared. Yeah. Like it was, you know, I've not been in that position where I can't not work sort of thing. So 2014, I was still doing the GD clothing thing. Okay. Um, two, three times a week. And that just gave me the time to ride the bike, obviously three times a week, do a bit of gym training, you know, be on a bit of a program but still earn just that little bit of money as well. Yeah. But yeah, like I say, it, it was a struggle, 14. I remember even though I had the support of a lot of stuff, I think I still had to buy certain things for the bike. I think I bought an exhaust system at six, 700 quid. And, you know, it, it, there weren't a lot of what, money there. You, you didn't get a load of free stuff. What a shocker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I got quite a lot of stuff. Like yeah. I got the the kit and I got the bikes obviously yeah I got the important stuff but there was still some missing missing things no. and like Revo fair play they, they're they so passionate about the sport this that and the other they went full steam into this Hitachi thing yeah so realistically I, I didn't have the support that I did at the end of 2013 yep from Revo yep fine you know but they didn't forget about me that's cool but yeah so I, yeah. I had to find some a little bit of budget from somewhere and you know, it's hard for me to think back and remember exactly. But I remember towards right. the end of 14, like, I was pretty low on money. It was a bit of a struggle. Bit of a struggle, bit last, of a struggle. last few months. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and 14, I can't remember where I finished in the championship. Something like 18th or 19th. And that was back in MX2? No, MX1. That was MX1, okay. Yeah, that was in MX1. I had some fairly good results throughout the year. Um, but yeah, I got towards the end of 2014, and it just wasn't going to work again to replicate that for 15. Yep. Stay with that setup. Yep. Revo would, you know, decided where they wanted to go, yep. which is fine. So they had their... So at that point, there was a bit of a... We didn't even talk about it, really. Revo didn't say, right, we're not happy to support you for the next year. Yep. Or I kind of didn't say, what's the scenario? Are we going to do the same again? Yeah. It was just a case of just separating. Kind of, they yeah, were doing their strange, thing and you were strange, doing their yeah, thing. Yeah, just kind of... But, but I didn't have anything to go to. So at the end of 2014, <laughs> honestly, it's so yeah. weird to think that. 2000, end of 2014, again, no direction. I, okay. didn't, I didn't have a massive impact in 14. Like, Result-wise, I wasn't, like say I was 19th in the championship or something. There's probably yeah. more riders sprinkled in there, so it was a bit more of a tougher year for, you know, competitor-wise. Yeah. But yeah, I just remember getting at the end of 14, budget was low for me again, nothing in place for 15. What was your mindset back at 14? Were you thinking, can I continue to do this? Yeah. Am, I, oh, am I actually thinking about going back to work? So do I, yeah. I yeah. mean, what, what, where were, you know, was there any low points where you're actually just thinking maybe this is yeah. it? Well, yeah. A lot of the time, I'll be honest with you. 13, when I had that no money in my bike went and stuff, I was more than prepared to just go down the standard route. Just take my part-time job, and... turn it into a full-time job maybe fall back on this whole education thing we spoke about. I was more than happy, not happy, but ready to do that yeah. because there was no choice. Yeah. Um, but then these things have just kept coming and coming out of nowhere, picking me up, giving yeah. me another opportunity. And I got to the end of 14, no, nothing in place. I was, you know, handed the bikes back to KTM UK. Thanks very much, this, that, and the other. I guess I was waiting for them to say, oh, we could do something similar next year or something. Yeah. You know, that's where I say I wasn't mega confident. So you, so rather than like uh, do a deal, can we up. do this? Yeah, yeah, I just didn't. I don't know. It was strange. 
But I think, um, I, th- I think you know, I, I don't know you. First time we've kind of met today, I've kind of said hello to you at races and stuff like that. But f- from my point, if I don't believe in, in, in luck and I don't believe in, in anything else, I believe in what you're making it, what you make of yourself. And I think from the, the short of this podcast and speaking to you before, I can quite quickly see that you're passionate about what you want to do. And if you really want to do something, you'll make it happen. Yeah, and um, obviously you said that yeah okay back in back in the day I wasn't that confident but you must have been you know you must have believed in yourself you must have believed that you could you could go forward and the only person who could have done that I know you had some help with some good friends around you but you must have wanted that yeah so that's where I suppose confidence when I float and um, throw that around is is a different thing I'm I'm thinking like confidence in probably social situations but I was confident in what I could do yeah so that's that's basically what you just said there yeah i knew that i come across to the people who were supporting you as well they knew what you were capable of and i've always been dedicated and i think that's that's a big thing so so, someone that wants to support you they want to know that you're in it like you're dedicated to it you want the resort at the end of it and i've always been like that i've always i suppose been friendly and just i suppose try my best in every single situation and i think that's what people see in me i hope they see in me because that's what i target myself on you know, I give it, I just give it a hundred percent. Yeah. And I've done things in a very different way to get to where I am. But like you say, people believe in me. That's why they keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, going back to that story, like end of 2014, nothing there. <laughs> I don't know why I wasn't proactive, but I was pretty much done. Like there was no option to, to carry on riding. I was off the bike. It was around the time of the dirt bike show. Yeah. And I was working at the dirt bike show. Who were you working for at the dirt bike show? This was, I probably just got a job, First MX. First MX. Retailer, yeah. Yeah, First MX. I was working with those guys. And what were you doing for First MX at the, at the time? Um, it was, I don't know how this worked. Let me just get my head around this. Was it warehouse or was it like doing some social stuff or was it um, I was in the, the website? I think at this time, thinking about it now, at this time, I'd started working at First MX. Okay. So it wasn't the GD thing. I might have got that wrong. Oh, okay. At some point, I went to First MX. Yeah. Um, Were you taking a lot of drugs at this, this <laughs> yeah. stage, Josh? Where, uh, it's just hard for the, me. the memory lapse and stuff. <laughs> no, well, it's thinking about now. How many years ago is that? Six years. Oh, yeah. You know, I can't remember what I did last week. I'm just exactly. taking a piss. So yeah. it's me just now thinking no, six years good. ago. I, could, I don't even know um, what six years ago. But no, drugs never done that. Yeah, so six years ago, First MX, I was working there. I was in the workshop. I was on doing boxes. Yep. You know, all that sort Just of whatever. Stuff. Just yeah, whatever. Yeah, Get whatever some money takes, yep. But they still had the flexibility of three days a week. Yep. Did they offer any support with the riding? Yeah. Or? Yeah. That's when they first started helping me. I, what I should say is when I obviously Mick helped out and all that sort of stuff, I yeah. did have First MX. That's when they first started helping. Ah, so I have excellent. missed a few things out. Okay. Obviously, it wasn't just Mick. Like First MX was helping Andy at First MX. That's cool. There was a couple of others sort yeah. of thing at that time. So yeah, 14, working at First MX. Went to the dirt bike show. We're first MX. Yep. Chaotic four days. I remember just selling yeah, stuff. Like, I'd done damn. really well. Like, I was selling <laughs> stuff for the first time in my life like a salesman. Yeah. People obviously wanted to talk to me about racing and stuff, but then I'd just sell them like a helmet. <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll talk about sponsorship, but uh, yeah, yeah, if you could take one of these helmets, that would help me. Because I'm not a salesman by any stretch, but I remember just, I sold a lot of stuff and Andy was like, wow, doing really well. Gave me some extra cash. That's cool. Brilliant. So that, that was a good memory. But I just remember at that time, it was probably like a few days after the dirt bike show, Adrian um, from 30. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, really good team. Nice guys. Yeah, amazing. And I'd never met him before. I would okay. say I've been in the paddock. I've probably put my thumb up to him like I am. I'd say hello to everyone sort of thing. But he rang me after 
So what time would that be? Late October? Uh, yeah. About show? Yeah, sort of, uh, I think, uh, usually around about the 31st, I think. Is yeah. It? Like so it's quite late yeah. on. It, well, I say it's late on. It's yeah. just after the season's finished, I suppose, a couple of months after that, a month yeah. after that. And he said, look, I've got a deal for you. It's like, wow. Just out of nowhere. Wow. You know, like, amazing. So I was down and out again, just considering things and trying to put something together, I suppose, yeah. in the background. But then said, I've got, I've got the deal for you. 450, KTMs, you get all your bikes. We'll basically give you a free ride. Holy shit. Yeah. How because cool I, is that? Because I did, like, even though I finished 18th, 19th in the championship in 14, I did have some highlight rides. Like I was in the top 10 a couple of times. And yeah. obviously that was enough for Adrian to look and think, Fair That's potential. Yeah, he's got potential. Yeah. He's still quite young on a 450. We can stuff. work with speed. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there and then he, he offered me that ride, as simple as that. Uh, I met him officially for the first time after that phone call. Yeah. He met SPS. Yep. He came down. That's where we first met in SPS's workshop. SPS was saying, this is what I've got. I've got the dyno. I've got the suspension. I've got means to work on this bike like we did in 14. Yeah. That worked really well for Adrian and for us at the time to make something work out because he lived quite a few hours away. Okay. And we had this set up to go ahead in 2015 as a, you know, uh, Verdi Sports KTM. Very, setup. very cool. Yeah. And amazing team. Well, hold that thought. We're going to have a little break and we're going to come back and talk a little bit more. Talon wheels have been iconic in the industry for over 30 years. Designed, built, and manufactured in the UK, Talon wheels, sprockets, footrests, and clutch baskets are used by professional riders like Jason Anderson, Zach Osborne, and Sean Simpson. Head over to www.talon-eng.co.uk for more info. You are listening to the British Motocross Show. Hey, we're back. It's the British Motocross Show. This week, we've got Josh Spinks uh, in the studio. It's really good to speak to Josh because up to this point, I've um, kind of spoken to him here and now in, in, in it races and stuff, but never really, I think this is the most we've ever spoke to each other <laughs> 100%. over yeah, over the years. Obviously, we've kind of, he, he's known of MX Vice and I've known of him and, and watched his career progress and stuff. So this is a great thing about these podcasts is we can, not just me, but everybody gets to know the other side, uh, you know, they get to know the history of the rider and, and, and what you guys go through. Because motocross is, A, it's fucking hard. <laughs> You're risking your life basically when you race. It's, like, I don't want to say, it's, it's not like football where, you know, the worst that can happen is probably, you know, whatever. Um, but you guys put your life on the line. It, you know, on the other side of that, people probably on the other side of the fence thinking you're getting paid thousands and thousands of pounds. And we're hearing stories about one minute you've got a bike and no van, then you've got a van and no bike because that's been stolen. And then you've just literally told us that in, which I'm trying to get my head around in 2013, you were winning the GT camp amateur championship. Let's say um, that's fair enough. That's yep. exactly yep. what it was. Yeah. An amateur championship, really great run, fun, love it, everything else. And then in 15, you're telling me that you've signed for Verdi KTM and you're potentially, you're leading Simpson and Frossard for two laps. Yeah. So how the hell, A, how did we get here? (laughs) And B, what changed in you as a rider and as a person to go from that point to, to leading a race? In the British Championship, it's um, it's having a good group of people around you, and that's what Verdi was. Um, Adrian, you know, he is very particular on the bike, and we had the 
suspension, all of a sudden we had this cone valve and tracks and we had some good stuff to work with. It was also a good environment, which is so important for me. I, I will admit that like if I'm having fun and dealing with people that like me, I like them and, and there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around, I, I perform. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm a confidence rider. When I'm happy and I'm confident, I go fast sort of thing. And that's, that's when that sort of shone in 2015 because like I say, I got to Blacksaw Pits British Championship. My qualifying wasn't great at all. I think I was like 20 something. You know what I mean? I, I, was, I wasn't having the best of days but to start with. And then I think I somehow just ripped this monster hole shot from towards the left of the center of the gate. I was towards the outside. It just hooked up out of the concrete. And I just remember pulling this whole shot and going into the second corner. Because if you remember at that track, it's a long right, into yep. a tighter right. And then there's a picture of me. I can't remember who got it, but coming down that little straight into the left-hand turn. And I've got like four, four bike lengths, just this huge hole shot. Wow. And like, the, I can't even express the amount of excitement of being out front for the first time in a British championship. And I just dropped the hammer. To be fair, I was, I was sprinting. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's no possible way. And Tom, again, from the previous podcast, mentioned about that at Hawkstone. I was just in this zone, like, how, how long can I keep this lead? Yeah. And Sean Simpson's all over the back of me. Yeah. And it was, it was. I think it was close to two laps. So compared to anything that I'd done before that, that was huge. Yeah. Massive. And like, where did I finish in the race? It was halfway through the year. I think I finished sixth, which was, you know. That's I mean, a great I, result. Fact, it was sixth. Because I was holding fifth and I was tired, obviously, on the last lap, but I'd kind of regained a bit of composure. And um, Martin Barr pit me on the last but one corner Damn. from fifth to sixth. So, yeah, but like, I got to the end of that race and I was just like, wow, like the speed, I can go that fast on a bike. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, like the bike was good. I had these components, like it, SPS, we was doing what we could do and stuff, but the bike wasn't on the level of Sean's, no. you know, and Frossard. But on the piece of paper at the end of it, which I've still got, somewhere at home because I just can't I just remember looking at it and thinking wow I'm on like a no sorry Sean won the race probably say a 147 yep lap time I'm sure it was Frostard it was Frostard that year wasn't it I'm pretty sure I'm sure it was Frostard on STR yeah STR ST Turner yeah so again another factory supported bike 147 point something and then I'm on a 147 from them crazy laps I put in at the start of the the race just like two tenths of a, a second slower on lap time you know, and to be on that same lap time as those two guys. Then you had people like Watley, Nichols, Elliot Banks-Brown. Who was on LP that year? Another GP rider. It's quite a stat year. Uh, was that Krestinoff that year? Krestinoff might have been Leoc. Leoc, it was yeah. Leoc. Okay. And they're like, we're on 147s, the three of us, and they're on like 149s. Wow. You know, and, and yeah, you, you can't just sprint for two laps and then not be able to maintain that for the race, but... That was a big thing for me at that time. But they were GP riders. G- on GP equipment. Yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah. But that gave me so much confidence, I think, from that race because I kept getting good starts. Where else? I led some laps of the MX Nationals, maybe. Okay. And I think I set the quickest lap at Preston Docks later right. in that year. Yeah. And again, that was still with Watley. That was still with Alec Banks-Brown. That was still with, um, you know, all these top, top riders. Top British riders, yeah. Yeah. And I, I set the fastest lap. I didn't win the race because I didn't have the, I couldn't keep that intensity up. Yep. But one thing I learned from that year is I've got speed. You got speed. I don't know where it's come from. It's the confidence. It's the having a slightly better bike. I've got, and it gave me that mindset that I can, I am as fast as these people. If it's for two laps, if it's three laps, the more I pulled whole shots and led each time, it was for longer because you get used to it. Yeah. So that 
MX Nationals at Preston Docks, I led for half the race, over half the race. It wasn't just two laps. You know what I mean? I so just kept building, 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 yeah. building. And I had some like sixth place overalls in British championships. And from where I was at in 14, that was a big step forwards. That's a huge step forward. Huge, huge step forward. So, so uh, at that point, obviously, you're with Verdi. Obviously, you've got that support. Like you said, you've gone from trying to do all these things and then you've got being offered this fantastic opportunity. Did you, anything change in training or, or mentally? Can, can you look back and, and kind of think of things where you brought other aspects into, into it for that season? Could, is there anything particular that you could look back on? I suppose I was learning as I was going. I wasn't, how can I put it? I wasn't sort of guided from a young age with gym training and all these things. It was just me and my dad. My dad was a fairly good rider back in the day, a bit of AMCA and endurance stuff. But I wasn't picked up from a young age and said, look, you need to start thinking about doing this with your gym trainer to get yourself prepared. I just, I kind of had to just figure it all out myself. Yeah. And like I say, I wasn't socially confident, so I wasn't asking the right questions to people. This is stuff I can look back on and I change straight away Yeah, to get that knowledge. I didn't have it. So 15, I, I did have a gym trainer. We was doing what we thought was right. Yep. Was it right? Probably not. Based on the stuff that I've learned recently, it was improving me. I was yeah. stronger. I was at that point able to ride quite a bit. I was riding two, three times a week. Yep. Which obviously bike fitness is, is crucial. So yeah, probably gave me the opportunity uh, through Verdi to ride a bit more. Okay. Looking back. So yep. that's, that helped. We had the equipment. I said the suspension definitely helped me. That was yep. a step forward. The bike was that little bit better. And then once I established I could go fast, and I was getting some pretty good results quite early on in the year. Confidence. So like the mindset is overrides everything. So that was the big change. That, that was the biggest change for me, yeah. Knowing and, that you could do it. Yeah, and knowing that I'm going to get through the year financially. <laughs> yeah. um, I had some security for the first time in a long time. Huge. That's cool. Yeah. So was the team built around you? Was there any teammates? Yeah, for the, that was the first time Verdi had built a two-man team. So it was me and Jake Millward. Ah, okay. Jake was on the 250. Yep. Obviously, he was, again, it was so good for, for the team um, because I was obviously doing these things and getting a bit of media attention and leading races in the Bain British Championship. But I seem to remember Jake doing it as well on the 250. Yeah. He made a big step up. Yeah, I think I remember that because yeah. I think previous years he was on uh, Oakleaf, yeah. Oakleaf Kawasaki, yeah. Yeah. So that's what happened. Like, as, as riders and as a team, we grew. Yeah. Everyone grew that year in 2015. And that's why the team environment was so good. Uh, everyone was happy. We was, me and Jake was probably really, well, we was really happy with our riding and results. Yeah. Verdi was really happy with our riding yeah. and results. Verdi was getting taken more seriously. Yeah, they had a nice setup. They put a yeah, lot of effort into yeah. it. Like they still do now, but I can remember in the early days, they really went the extra mile. 100%, yeah. And, and their approach and Adrian and Nikki's outlook on a British Championship team was great. And that's, that gave me and Jake what we needed to improve our riding. So I'm so thankful for them for picking me up in 15. Because yeah. if I wouldn't have had that call from Adrian, again, that might have been it. Yeah. So there's been so many instances in my racing where it that's could have crazy. just been done. So at the dirt bike show, you spoke to Adrian and that's kind of how... I don't know. I think I'd, I don't even know if I spoke to Adrian at the dirt bike show. Maybe you just walked past, I think he said it, and seen me working. Yeah. Because when you, you know what the dirt bike show is, like, <laughs> yeah, in the retail crazy. bit where you're selling stuff, like it was just chaotic. Yeah. But maybe he just looked and seen, I don't know what he thought. Maybe he looked and thought, why is he working at the dirt bike show? 
It'd be cool to get it, Adrian on one of these podcasts yeah, and so I can ask him about it. Yeah, That'd be very and cool. It, it'd be cool for that, you know, me and Adrian. Do you Even, still, do you still, have you got a good relationship with Adrian now? Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't, I haven't raced all year in 19, so I've not been at the track. But, you know, we'll probably get into it, what happened from there. Sort yeah, of yeah. Because you might think now, oh, it was going so well, why did you not stick there? But there's, there's so much to it. There was no fallouts. It was a decision by myself. Yeah. But I'm the sort of person that, yes, I have distanced myself from teams. Um, I've never actually been pushed off a team. Yeah, which is quite. I want to get out there. Yeah, because there's, you know, that's where people talk and stuff. I've always made the decision if it's not going as I want it to, or I can't see a future, and it's the fun's gone or whatever. I've, I've gone. Yeah, uh, but I will always like speak to them, say hello. There's no bad blood. Do you know what I mean? That's that's, cool. that's the sort of person I am. Yeah. So you can kind of walk around the pits and everybody you've worked with, you've yeah, got good relationships exactly. with. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's cool. yeah, as far as a relationship, it's a small, it's a small uh, industry. Yeah, small industry. Um, very aware of that. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, so Adrian, you know, if I seen him at a chat, I'd go straight over and have a chat with him and nice. vice versa. So it's nice. nice. Very cool. Yeah. So 15 then was a, a successful year. Yep. So had some great, great races. You started to see yourself more of, you know, within quickly within two years, you've kind of established yourself as, you know, a top 10 rider. Yeah, definitely. With the potential of having the pace to, to run up front. Yeah, you know, or top fives or, or top threes or whatever. I, 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 you know, told myself and proven to myself that actually, yeah, that's where I can go, which just gives you more motivation to not hang the boots up, trust what you're doing. Yeah. Keep going forward. And that, that was it. I mean, 15, I got right to the end of it. And Adrian, I'll probably have a laugh with you this one. Fox Hills, like I've touched on, I actually like the track. Yep. I, I wasn't doing the British Masters, but there was a, a round towards the end of the year at Fox Hills, and I rang Adrian. I was like, we'd already been there with the British and the MX Nationals or whatever. I was like, Adrian, there's a race this weekend at Fox Hills. What do you think about me entering it, just as a one-off? Yeah. And I could tell you, like, oh, I'm not sure. You know, you know, that track's sketchy, isn't it? Like, the ground's really hard, and, you know, I just don't want you to risk hurting yourself. What, if you really want to do it, you, you go ahead and do it, sort of thing. And I know in my head I'm doing it. Yeah. So I went there. I went with Colin, SPS again, yep. to the races. We had both bikes. Good qualifying. Race one, I had a bike problem. Something daft, like an injector or something. But I managed to finish the race. Yeah. But the second race, the track was blue grooved. Slick, you know, crazy. Yeah. And I ripped a whole shot of all times again against Watley over there. Elite Bikes Brand, good riders. And I put the hammer down. Like, I'm comfortable in them conditions. I was hanging it out, and I pulled like a two or three second gap in a lap or two laps. I was going crazy. Wow. I just wanted to win this race for whatever reason. Thinking back, probably pushing too hard. Third lap, come over this single out of a corner, lost a bit of balance, put my leg down, ACL, gone. No. Yeah. So that obviously shut the 15 down pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's just one of them daft moves. I don't regret going there and racing, but maybe I was just getting carried away with all this speed that I knew I had. Yeah. And again, I was in that position where there was no one in front of me and I just wanted to go. I, just, I was trying to prove something, obviously. Yeah, but confidence was good because confidence. obviously confidence made you think, do you know what? I, I can run with these guys. Yeah. And I actually fancy my chances. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, like, I go well at the track. But that's just, life happens, isn't it? That's Sometimes that's, shit you, happens. You can't say the racer out of a rider. No. Simple as that. Each time I was leading races, it was for longer. Like I said, prior to that, before that. Yeah. Longer, longer, longer. So in my head, I was like, right, this might be the one. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to, you know, I was going to ride at my full potential. But the track was sketchy and the result was ACL damage, season finish. I couldn't do the last couple of rounds. 
or the last round. So that was it, the end of the season? Yeah, that was that So was when was this? Was September? Yeah, end like of August? early, yeah, probably end of August. I okay. missed the British Championship. Yeah. Basically. And I felt bad just because I knew that Adrian was being sensible. Yeah. I knew that I didn't have to do that. Yeah. But it was one of my favorite tracks and I knew I was going to get a result and I was just confident. Yeah. It's a danger sometimes with confidence. Yeah. You think you can do things. and But anyway, that was a bit of a dampener on the year, okay. to say the least. And how long did that take you to recover from the ACL? Um, off the top of my head, just the standard. I had a quick operation on it. Yep. Um, probably a good two months still. Really? Longer. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I, I, I've done a couple of ACLs before, but that was a long time ago. But I mean, sometimes they can take up to six months. Yeah. So it wasn't completely snapped. I, oh, okay. I don't know if I said snapped, but yeah. like a rupture and rupture, they had to okay. tidy it up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it was probably longer than two months. Do you still get problems now with it? Yeah, like I do a little bit of stretching and obviously I try and get onto this yoga sort of stuff in yep. certain positions that I can't fully get the range of movement. Yeah. So I know it's still, there's a bit of scar tissue or something like that. But yeah, other than that, it's, um, that was a good few years ago now. So it doesn't hold me back if you like. Oh, that's good. So you've had a great year with Verdi. Yeah. You obviously had to miss up with, with the knee. Yeah. But you didn't stay there. No. So again, be fully open with this. Um, because of these crazy bursts of speed, it didn't go unnoticed. Yeah. I was still working at First MX at the time. Okay. So still holding down the job. Still holding that down. Still had to. The, you know, I got everything I needed sort of um, bike-wise and machinery-wise and kit-wise and stuff, but you got to earn a better living yep. or some sort of money. So First MX was still fit for what I wanted to do. Yep. And then I wasn't at work this day, but Princey, Neil Prince, yep. Suzuki UK, obviously running Erwin at the time, rang First MX because that's how he wanted to get in contact with me. That's how he, you know, he knew I worked there. He rang them, said it's Josh in sort of thing. Yeah. I wasn't. So they left me a message and the girl that worked at First MX rang me or dropped me a message and said, look, Prince is after you. So yeah. In my head, I'm like, I'm all excited. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Erwin's like, doing pretty good yeah. at that stage on the bike. You know, I'm not even thinking about, oh, it's a, it's a Suzuki, like not many people ride them or it's a bit behind on other manufacturers or stuff. I'm just thinking, what what does Neil want from me? Do you know what I mean? So it's quite interesting. Yeah. So I got in contact with him, arranged the meeting, um, and, he, and he offered me a ride. And it, it was a paid ride. Wow. Yeah. It, not a lot of money, but it was a paid it ride. It was paid. We'll it, take it that. It was more progress <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. I'm still moving forward. But this is, how, this is the sort of person I am. So I had this conversation. I knew exactly what Neil had in mind this, that, and the other. Yeah. I, rang, I rang Adrian and I said, look, Adrian, this is the relationship I had with Adrian. I said, Neil's been in contact with me. Yeah. He wants to try and enable me to ride full time, which is the reason obviously giving me a little bit of money. Yeah. What, and I just said, what do you think? You know, because I'm quite new to it all still and I'm not yeah. expecting this. this has come out of nowhere. It's all happening pretty quickly. And I remember Adrian just basically saying, that seems a good opportunity. Like a hard <laughs> opportunity to say no to. Yeah. And I know that Adrian was a little bit up in the air with going again for 2016. Okay. I can't talk so, on his behalf. Like, yeah, but depending on what yeah, the manufacturer was going to do yeah, and, exactly. and all the rest of it, it was a support. Bit, it was a bit like, obviously they did go ahead and do it. Yeah. And it was probably always going to be the option, but there was that little uncertainty yeah. that we, I got from Adrian. And I thought, wow, like I, I've got to do this. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Adrian said, look, absolutely fine. I understand where you're coming from. Give it a go. So I just put, I just went full steam ahead with Neil on the Suzuki. Now, yeah. what's interesting is sat here now, would I have done that? Hindsight. No. It's a beautiful thing, hey? I would not have done that. Really? But, is that, yeah, 100% would not have done that. 
And and were there particular reasons that you can talk about that what made you not think again that way? This is where I said like I got towards the end of 2016 and I walked away from the team. And obviously a lot happened to cause that to happen. Yeah. Um but again, if I see Neil Prince at a track, what do I do? I go and speak to him. Yeah. You know, that's it, it was no major, major fallout. But again, I can't say exactly why. There's so many reasons why. Yes, I was underperforming in comparison to 15. Sure. But I've got many, many reasons in my mind and knowing how uncomfortable I was on that bike. Yeah. That resulted in that. One thing I can mention is I, I was paid 5,000 pounds. Right. That's, right. you know. Yeah. Where that's not now. enough to that, live on. That's not enough to live on. <laughs> but obviously there was, there was perks. So there was like, he gave me a van to use. I, okay. could, I could sell my van. Yeah, because at the time, I think they had Heads and Freds. Heads and Freds van. Yeah. Give me a van, give me a fuel card. So when you start adding it all, yeah, it's that's, not all that bad. It, yeah, a know, van's three, four hundred pounds a month. Yeah. Fuel's going to be probably five hundred quid. Five hundred quid with traveling. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's an extra thousand pound a month. Yeah, exactly. In a way. So I worked it out like that, and that's why it was possible for me. Okay. You know, but this is such a strange thing. So it's Suzuki UK. Um, Owen had been doing okay on the bike previously. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, like I was riding the bike and I wasn't sort of gelling with it. I wasn't comfortable with it. Very different to the KTM. I'd, on the KTM, I'd had all this sort of fancy suspension, cone valve, this, that, and the other. Don't know why. I don't know if it was a budget thing or Suzuki wanted their bike to look as factory spec as possible. I think that was one thing that was said to me. But we was using this standard triple air port on the bike. And this is when the the air forks really come in and a lot of people just couldn't get on with them, could they? I don't know one person no. that got a feel for that. You come off a bike that's almost dialed in, not perfect, but comfortable enough to run up front in a British, which I was on, Yeah. to a bike that's as rigid as like knocking the crap out of me with these chamber forks. There was no testing. I could not believe it. I couldn't believe what was sort of there for whatever reason. like. I, out of that money that I got, I'll be open with you, I bought a set of suspension for that bike. Wow. So you went back to a spring yeah. suspension. I bought a shower fork. That just gives you an insight of what yeah. I was struggling and with. And did that improve? It did improve a little bit. But then we, I guess but it was But now we're in the season. Yeah we're, yeah, we're in the season. We're trying to test a little bit. And, you know, yeah, I'm not going to say that it's everything... It wasn't just me. What I said earlier, like, if I'm confident, I'm happy, I go yeah. fast. Yeah, of course, everybody. It's the yeah. same for everybody. So if, if some, you're happy at work, almost you, you every, perform better. Almost everyone. There's, I mean, there's some people that can override stuff, you know? Yeah. As in, like, if the bike's not where it'd usually be, they can just still push through it. But I'm not one of them people. So, yeah, basically, I, I was just not... I've never crashed the bike so much. I've never felt so tense on a bike. And that, that's what happened. I just didn't have the confidence I had the year before. Yeah. I was still doing okay, dipping in the top 10. But I was just getting very tired riding the bike, lacking confidence. It turned around a little bit for me, and this just proved to me what I was struggling with. I was struggling with a suspension setter all the way through the year, not comfortable at all. And then we managed to not buy, but hire a set of Patrick AYB from Chris Bastic, who runs Mildenall. Yeah. I think it was Elliot Banks-Brown set from the year before, yeah. when GearTech was on Suzuki. We managed to just simply borrow it for Blacksaw Pit for that round. And I got something like a sixth and a seventh or something. <laughs> it was a massive improvement. Yeah. And it just, you know, whether it's my mind, I just thought, oh, this, must, this stuff must work. 
yeah. And it gave me that confidence. But whatever it was, I managed to turn it around a little bit. But yeah, it just got to the point where I just didn't feel like I was moving forwards. I wasn't happy with the racing yeah. and how comfortable I was feeling. Obviously, there was a bit of pressure on me all of a sudden because I was a Suzuki UK rider. Neil wasn't happy with the results, even though I had yeah. all these reasons for it. You're kind of in the limelight as well. A lot of focus yeah. on you for having to step up. Yeah, I was probably because I was on the 450 rider. I was the main rider yeah. on a Suzuki in this country. Simple as that. Yeah. So obviously Neil wasn't massively happy with the results and I, I fully understand why. Yeah. And I just thought, you know, it's, it's just not doing me any favors yeah. at all. So I got towards the end of the year. Nothing lined up? Nothing lined up. Kind of. I'll move on to that. But I, anyway, I just said to Neil, look, I'm not, I can't carry on. I've got, I've just got to get away from this because it's just doing me absolutely no favors. My confidence is low. Not riding the bike very well. I'm not getting the results. So I left the big wage behind. <laughs> Was it the, handed the van it's back. not you, it's me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I just handed the, the van back and fuel cards and, Obviously, things were a bit sour at the time. Yeah. But basically, I, I spoke to Paul Geertek while this was about to happen. Okay, yep. Elliot had been injured. In, Elliot was injured. Okay. So it kind of, he had a bike sat there, and yep. I knew that. And Paul Mason is just such a guy. Like, he's, you know, so approachable, in yep. it for the right reasons. And I just said, look, this, I'm struggling. I told him everything. I said, can I ride your Yamaha for the last round or last two rounds? Because I want to get out of this situation. Yeah. And he said, yeah. So that was enough for me to just hop on that. Hopefully, jump on it, get my results back to where they should be, thinking again for 17. Yeah. So you got to think ahead. And I, I got on that bike, uh, the Yam one for Hawkstone MX Nationals. Was it Cusses last round of the British that year? Was it Cusses? Uh, no, Fox Hills. Fox Hills, is it? Okay. Yeah. But I, I went straight to Hawkstone, not one of my favorite tracks, finished on the podium wow. on the Gear Tech Yamaha. You know, and it just... It further confirmed. I wasn't happy with... I, I couldn't work with the bike. Yeah. Suzuki. But nothing, having nothing the change, got your mindset correct. Yeah, Press the reset button. Yeah. And maybe, like you say, maybe it wasn't the bike. I don't know. But whatever mindset I was in or struggling with, it, it kind of resolved itself a little bit. Yeah. I was gutted, though, because I did that at Hawkstone, which is one of my favorite... No, least favorite tracks. Then when I went to the British Championship, I think I put that much pressure on myself. I was like, I love this track. The yeah. bike's gelling with me more. Yeah. And I think that's the first time I've loaded that much pressure on myself. I've got like 11th or something. Damn. Um, yeah. And it didn't, it didn't materialize. It didn't lead to anything in um, 17. So guess what happened again? SPS? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. No, yeah. SPS were there. But SPS didn't provide a bike. No. They were the assistants. You know, they made... Once, they you've, got, once you... you've got the... Yeah. yeah, they helped me get there. Yeah. So again, here I am at the end of 16. Nothing. Damn. Again, how many times is this now? Three yeah. or four times in the space of five years? And then what happened there? That winter was quite amusing, actually, thinking back. I was, one week I was on a friend's 450 Honda. Yep. Then the week after I was on a YZ250, borrowed by someone I don't even know. <laughs> like, I was hopping bike to bike to bike. There's, there's something in my head, now I'm thinking about it, that just, I didn't want to quit, you know, because of what had happened. Yeah. And the, the pace I was showing is that I didn't want to quit. And I was just willing to do absolutely anything. So I was borrowing bikes just to keep my fitness up, this, that, and the other. And then again, through a friend, met someone at Manchester Motorcycles. Yep. Husqvarna. And it was the same sort of deal, just free ride. I'll give you a bike to ride. Here's some kit. A Chervis kit, I think it was. These are the plans. We can do the British. And that was my only option. So I went with it. 
Wow, simple as that. Okay, but that's good that something came up. Yeah, exactly. It was better than absolutely nothing. It wasn't an established team. I decided that was the first time I decided to drop back down to the 250. Okay. So that's important. I'd been 450 all this time. I think I just wanted a change. So 16, back on 250. Yeah. Who's Farner? Uh, no, seven, going into 17. 17, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Who's Farner? 250, Manchester Motorcycles, not an established team, um, a dealership, obviously yep. from Manchester. And yeah, we, we just tried to put something together. It's as simple as that. I started the year with them, them guys. Yep. They built a race bike. And here's me just slaying bikes and stuff again. There's nothing wrong with Husqvarna's. We know that. Yeah. But the engine they built, I was struggling with. I was just saying, can I ride my standard bike? Can I ride my standard bike? Rode my standard bike. Results improved. Yeah. So it was this whole, they're not fully experienced in the paddock. And I don't think they was working with me as a rider. Yeah. So it didn't work out. Just one of those things. Yeah, one of those things. And again, like, I'm trying to word this like, and get this as it is so people don't see me as a problematic person. <laughs> I might be. Why are we talking? I, I Maybe this be. is therapy yeah, for you. It, I might be, but <laughs> I just, I don't know. I try and be fair in the situations and it, it simply wasn't working. I think there's so much more to it. Again, I can't talk about it all. Yeah. But one of the rounds, I didn't, the race, a bike, I only had one bike. I was with SPS again. Yeah. The rest of the team didn't come to the track whatever reason okay so i was at the british championship it, it was just falling apart in front of me yeah and and before it doesn't that, give you confidence no, on the bike no, and... before that it fell apart there was no fallout or anything like that it was just out of the blue and that's when i first met uh, matt smith okay because i was with this manchester i was racing uh the british it was falling to pieces i don't know if it was a budget thing again like they just couldn't back up what they told me they yep. can do. Matt Smith, again, listened to my story, knew what the situation and said, look, I've got two KTMs. If you're struggling, if, you, if it's not going to work for you, hop on them. Yeah. Sort of thing. Because he, he'd been helping a lad called Chubby Hammond at the time. Yeah. Um, I think it was Callum, again, that swam my friend that had arranged that sort of meeting with Matt. So just, you can see how helpful up. Yeah, Callum, yeah. Is. yeah Pop, popping up along the way. Oh, it's amazing. So he's helped me so much over the, over the past. That's you know, cool. True friend, yeah. Uh, it's been there every step of the way. So that's where it kind of went on to this Matt Smith thing um, to finish 2017. And again, I got in a good environment. I had a better bike. Yep. Matt was, you know, he knew he was a rider himself. We we didn't have a tuned engine, but we had a pipe on it. We had an ignition on it. It was a big improvement from what I had with a with a Husky, with that team. Yeah. And again, the results improved. I went from, again, just that around that top 10 rider, first year in MX2 to nearly winning the race at Blacksaw Pits right up until like two minutes left on the clock. Damn. Yeah. I think it was, that's when Todd Kellett won. Okay. Ben Watson was there. But I led the race from start to last bit three laps or something. Again, I had that confidence. It's yeah. that same thing. It's, it's happened again. My bike was good. It wasn't amazing. Yep. SPS was still there. Matt was enthusiastic, was having such a good crack in the paddock. Do you know what I mean? Like the atmosphere was Back there. to enjoying Back it. Back to enjoying it. I was always giving 100% like I always have done. Matt was giving 100%. Colin was giving 100%. Callum's there giving 100%. Um, <laughs> what was he doing? Making sandwiches? Just pom-pom boy. Or oh, pom-pom, yeah. yeah. Dancing Got the hot pants on and supporting yeah. you. Good. And again, I went from a low again to a high. And then Matt really enjoyed, obviously, what we was doing, getting his bike and all the rest of it towards the front of the racing. He, he liked me as a person. He must have done because he kept things going. And, and what, what else did we do? In 2017, we entered the last EMX. 
Okay. Because we gained this momentum and yep. started getting some really good results. So we, we, we said, let's go to the last round of the EMX in France and give that a go. Try and qualify. You know, why not? First year on the 250. Something amazing happened that weekend. I went out for the, the qualifying second group um, on the Saturday and I put this clean lap in like early on. It didn't yeah. feel like amazing, but I hit everything how I wanted it to. Come round, P1 on the board. Damn. First set of EMX and I'm like, wow. Come round the second lap. P1, third lap, P1. The whole session, P1, 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 until the last lap when Rowan, Van der Mustein, yep, hit me by like 0.2 of a second. So I'd entered the CMX and nearly pulled the qualifying. Wow. So, yeah, things were So things were going again. in the right way. Yeah. Right, right direction. Definitely on the up. And I, and I only missed out on the actually finishing on the podium that weekend because I got stuck on the hill in the second race. Because the conditions were that really bad, that yeah. really bad. If you remember back in 2017, yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, I again went from a super low to a big, big high again. Yeah. And, and and it seems that you, you yourself, you've got to be happy with a bike and be in the right mindset to perform. Hundred percent. Once you're happy and you're confident, then things are looking good. Good things are happening. Yeah, and that's it. So that gave us some momentum for 2018 again with Matt. Yep. KTM 250. This time we actually put some money into, well, Matt put some money into the engines. Yeah. Uh, PGVM was on board. Cool. Um, as, a, as a private sort of sponsor and helping towards things. Because interestingly, that, that round of the EMX in 2017, and people won't believe me, but that engine was standard. A standard like, engine? A standard engine, I swear to you. So you got P1 at EMX 250. Nearly, well, P2 at the end of it. There's on, gonna be dads a, crying listening to this. Yeah, but like I don't <laughs> I honestly don't care if people don't believe that. Me I know that, Matt Smith knows that, SPS know that. It had a pipe, legal fuel, because obviously they're hot on it, but yep. we had different fuel. And that was it. And we was doing that when I led led that race at the British. I'm against Ben Watson doing GPs and stuff. And I completely stopped by. So it's a great advert for KTM. Amazing. Yeah, well, everyone knows that our engine on the two fifty is amazing. Yeah. And it just proves it. But yeah, so some amazing things happened going into 2018. We did the EMX. We had a good crack at that. We was really happy with the result. Why would we not want to do some more in 2018? So that's what we did. Yeah. And that's when you got the podium. Yeah. So what round would that have been? I didn't do every single round because the EMX liked to take you to some so exotic m- countries. Was it Matali the first podium? Yes. Yeah. The first and only, obviously. Um, and then you had two podiums. In, in the, the British, British as well, yeah. In the British Championship in yeah. 2018. So I kind of, I suppose I caught a bit of fire. I got some confidence. Um, I was in the same scenario, same setup. The bike was further improved. Did have a tuned engine. Yeah, brilliant. So that podium at Matley Basin for me was, that's a career highlight. That's something that I can think about even now, a couple of years later, and just puts a smile on my face. Did that feel good getting up there? Absolutely amazing. I can't, I honestly can't put that into words. Because I knew what I'd done was huge yeah <laughs> do you know what i mean and like and then and then you think what's happened up to that point so yeah. it's just it's the piece it's the, it's the best thing and the biggest accomplishment to date so the, the interesting be. thing when i look back at that race is the people you beat yeah Vial, i think in one of them Vial. did Vial win the first race like on third no i don't think he did right so there is there's like Vial, there's like moustache uh, yeah um barami Azami. Yeah, Barami, yeah. Yeah, he won the championship that year. Yeah. He was a factory Husky number 11 that's on the same FMS uh, team. Now. Mick Harrop. Harrop. 
Yeah. 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 I know Jet Lawrence. He was young. Jet Lawrence. He was on a factory Suzuki, but he was on there. But if you look back at that, I I just find it really interesting looking back at the, you know, that that whole class at Matley Basin was absolutely stacked and few to podium. Yeah. Massive achievement. And yeah, uh, like my results were a third and an eighth. So you look at, yeah, but you take it because. Everyone knows what that group's like. Yeah. No, there's not much consistency, or there definitely wasn't that year. Yeah. But I the reason why... was I've, a three and a nine, I think. Something like that. Yeah. It was crazy. But I finished second. Doesn't yeah. matter. The reason why I can look at it and thinking about that weekend and know that I earned it was the first race, I came through to third. I'm yep. like, not a bad start, don't get me wrong, but I came through. And I was putting in the quickest laps of the race at the end. Clarky was in front of me. I can't remember who won that race. I should know, really. I'm just going to have a look now. So uh, let's get Matley up. Yeah. Uh, but I just 50. know that for like two, three or four laps out of that race, I was the quickest on track. Yeah. So, so um, I earned that race, podium. Race one was Clark Vial Spinks. That's right. Uh, Michael Sander, who's... Um, done a little bit now he's 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 come on the last couple of years i yep. think he was on the hitachi end part last year while rami sorry fifth pocock yep. sixth bar seventh done eighth Goupillon, ninth mm-hmm. ferrato tenth yeah um we've also got dylan walsh in there eleventh uh sabulis tombs kellett Geno, harrop fischetti uh knight and todd obviously then a couple of british riders Glenn Mayer, Brian uh, Moreau. You've got Lawrence Lepucci, who's, who's doing very well, and Van Moosdijk and Horgmo. Yeah. So, so it's not a bad class. No, 100%. But that because the EMX is full of these young riders and stuff, it is, it's, everyone says, I think even like your top MX1 riders and MX2 riders, I think they'd go out the way to watch the race because it's just madness. Yeah. It is the most exciting race to watch. Oh, even great. to qualify for it because you've got 80 riders sometimes. Yeah. There's something about that EMX 250 that's just, and the pace as well. If you sometimes link the laps to MX2, even though you're out on track at different times, it gives you a bit of an indicator. Yeah. And I remember like I was good enough for like top 10 in MX2 that day or something, or like top 12 or something. So it was like so many positives. You were on pace. But if you look at, I don't know if it says on there, like the difference from me to the leader or me to second at the end of the race, it was something like two seconds or something. I, I was just literally on the overall. And right. So, Stephen Clark first, your second, and then you got Goupilon who's third. But there's one, two, three, four riders all tying on thirty-two points for yeah, for basically for third. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was yeah three and a nine. It was, was for third overall and three eight was yeah. So if we get, sorry, so we go to race one and um, we'll just look at uh, so so Clark was in ra- in race one. Clark was first, Vial second, and yourself was third. I'm just looking at the the lap times. Uh, best lap time was a two two thirty one. Two, two, sorry, 230.1. Yeah. I think it was the fact I, earlier in the race, Clark had come through as well, to be fair. I think he'd passed me earlier in the race. But on them last couple of laps, no, on the last lap, Vial and Clarky was sort of banging bars. So I got pretty close. Yeah, you were, uh, Vial was um, uh, 1.9 seconds behind and you were 1.1 seconds behind Vial. Exactly. I was in contention for the win that race. And it looks like you had Sander up your ass and Boirami just behind as well. I'd passed Sander on the last lap. Fourth. So it was an exciting race. Obviously, I got the podium that that race. I also had a couple of good results after that. I think Switzerland, I had a third in one race. And it was the same thing. Clarky was just in front of me. I don't know if he's like the toe for me or something. (laughs) Like, it seems to work. But um, again, I set 
like towards not of the whole race, but say the last two laps of the race, I was the fastest on track and stuff. It was a good indication of, I suppose, the hard work I'd put in and stuff. Yeah. But there's obviously there's something we'll probably touch on at the moment. I was racing the EMX, traveling around and stuff, but I had, I was running my own business. I was running my own business, like coaching kids and stuff, as well as doing this. Okay. Is, yeah. So, yeah. so we haven't spoken about that yet, no. but obviously you were coaching in the background. So, how many, so, so during the 18 season, how many sort of days were you spending um, actually riding on the boat? Two days. Two days. Two okay, days. Two days a week. Just yeah. just consistent amount. Yeah. Definitely not as much as some people. Yeah. Would I, if I had the opportunity, ride a bit more? Yeah, definitely. Okay. But all of this time, obviously, I, I touched that I've been paid that huge amount in 2016 yep. to ride. But since then, I've, I've never, I've not had a wage. So, so in 18, I'm, you you done this no wage, no wage from riding. Okay. Um, obviously, so, so how, how are you supporting yourself literally through coaching? Yeah, coaching is, um, we didn't touch on it um, in 16, but that's where it all started, really. So, because I, was, I wasn't getting paid a massive amount in 16, yeah, I was finding things to do to just earn that little bit more. Okay. Um, and that came in the, people actually come to me, a couple of little kiddies, like, you know, the parents, can you just give my lad a few pointers? Yeah. Um, we'll cover your, because I was riding at the time at the track, we'll just cover your um, practice fee or whatever, or just give you a bit of cash or whatever. And, and, I just thought, hold on, there's a bit of something here. Like, I quite yeah. enjoy it. I consider myself pretty good. Yeah. Um, sort of chatting to kids and I can get on their level and all that sort and of stuff. And they kind of can, you can converse with them. Yeah. And, and they I, can... That comes very natural to me, I think. So I've been told. I find kids. that with my seven-year-old. We're yeah. on the same wavelength. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I, I'm exactly the same. So yeah, going back to that, um, 16, this, co- this whole coaching thing started. Okay. And it just kind of grew because, yes, I could book things in as and when I wanted. Yeah. It was actually, there was good money involved at times. Yep. I'm not going to lie about it. And it gave me that flexibility I needed to carry my racing on. But yeah, interestingly, out of all those people in the EMX, let's be honest, who else was running their own business at the time? Yeah. And it was like, I was busy with stuff in 18, yeah. coaching. Like It wasn't just like a one-to-one once a week. Like I was doing group days, I was hiring tracks. I was like, through the school holidays, I was probably having a bit of time off from riding to cater for the people that wanted to do the coaching. Because you have a, I say, a taste of money when you've never really earned a lot and it's hard to turn it down. Yeah. You know, you've kind of grown something up that's going to be there after the racing. Yeah. And that's what the coaching is. But yeah, it, what, what is quite different and my path's a bit different is, mm-hmm. I've, like I say, I've always worked and when I've been doing this EMX and getting these unnoticeable results at the end of the day, but I've, I've been working. I've been putting a lot of time into building something up in the, in the, in the background. For the future, basically. For the future. And like I say, it's got to the point now where coaching-wise, it's amazing, really, because it's fully, it's, it's fully established. It's a business. I've joined the summer holidays. I'm sometimes out five times a week, six times a week. Wow. Um, so it's, really t- it's starting it's to really take on. Yeah, it's amazing. And I get so much enjoyment from it as okay. well. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the coaching. We're going to hit a break. Let's have a listen to a couple of our advertisers who, um, without those guys, we wouldn't have this podcast show. So, uh, and we'll be back in five. Talon wheels have been iconic in the industry for over 30 years. Designed, built, and manufactured in the UK, Talon wheels, sprockets, footrests, and clutch baskets are used by professional riders like Jason Anderson, Zach Osborne, and Sean Simpson. 
head over to www.talent-eng.co.uk for more info. The British Motocross Show. Thanks to the sponsors. Welcome back to the last section of the British Motocross Show. Great to have Josh Spinks, uh, and I hope you're enjoying everything which Josh is talking about. I think there's some really great insights, not only into, into his career, but also into motocross in general. So the, the thing which I've kind of noticed, and, and, and Josh touched about it a little bit, just, just on the end part of the, of the last section, is the coaching. I've seen his, I've seen the posters pop up on social media and and it really does seem to be gaining some traction. So I know you kind of said that this was a bit of a a supplement, but you know, two two wages and stuff like that. And now it's really starting to to gather steam, but it sounds like it, again, you didn't plan it. It just kind of came to you where we talked about, you don't make your own luck in life, but at the same time, having and just kind of saying yes to those people to start off with with training mm-hmm. seems to have built something quite quite good for yourself yeah um things take a really strange path and that's been evident obviously with my racing side of it my career but also like you say in in the coaching side of it i think what how i've managed to keep my racing alive is because i just won't give up to it i've got the mindset in that i want to race i'm i've got the potential to get the results that I want. Um, and I don't know if that just manifests these things that are happening around you. You know what I mean? When you're so focused on what you want, things happen. Um, and that, that's definitely happened with my racing. But with the coaching, like I said, I took a couple of people on coaching-wise. When I'm coaching riders, I'm 100% committed to them people. And I give them the best day they possibly can. I, that they walk away from the day having learned a lot. And if you do a good job with someone, they recommend you to someone else and then you've got more people. So what type of riders do you work with? Are these riders at national level? these riders just starting out? What type of riders are you working with? The main sort of basis that I've got at the minute is very young riders. So okay. a lot of 50cc lads. Um, do you ban their dads? No, I've been very lucky. You know what? I've been very lucky. And I think because I know how to deal with them, Okay, I've got this bit of a weird, different approach Okay, um, where I actually get them to see things maybe a little bit different. I just focus on, you know, they're there to, to work hard and pick up things and they're there to learn. It's as simple as that. But why yeah. not have as much fun as you can whilst you're doing it? Absolutely. Because without the fun, they just get bored. Yeah, precisely. And I can just get on their level. I'm a big kid at heart, you know, for instance, a few years ago when I used to coach a lad called Jed. He had a little BMX. Um, we used to go down to Mildenall. I've still got a BMX. I put it in the van. Cool. You know, so yeah. we, we was just, Riding around on BMXs, I'm 25 years old, you know what I mean? <laughs> but he loved it, yeah, you know, and I loved it, in all fairness. I wasn't just doing it to be that person that's trying to get everyone on your side and be this fake sort of person. I, I still enjoy a bit of BMX and stuff. Yeah. But because we're having this chat and we're flying around on BMXs and stuff, guess what? When we go on the track, he's going to listen to what I say. Yeah. So I've got this, I don't know, it's just a different, yeah. slightly different approach. We're here to learn. I'm not going to just mess about with you you know and, and just get away from that but if we can have some fun you trust me as a person especially at a young age and you want to be around me you're going to listen to what i say yeah it's like being back at school isn't it if you've got another teacher you're not going to listen to what they say no but if, if you've got a teacher that's having a bit of fun and makes you feel like you actually want to be there you're going to listen a bit simple as that so are there any riders um who you've come across who we should be watching out for in the in the you know, in the next few years? So uh, a few years ago, um, I used to do a bit with this Rob Daly. Um, okay. Uh, 
Dali, I don't know if surnames exactly pronounced, but yeah. So like from a very young age, I just did a couple of sessions with him, but he's obviously moved on to different things. But I touched on him earlier with this um, KTM sort of deal that he's got going sure. on and all the rest of it, but he's, he's very sort of impressive. Yeah. So I think he's definitely going to be um, someone to watch. But here's something um, interesting as well. I coach a girl called ah, cool. Olivia yep. Reynolds. Yep. She's a little bit older. She's just made the transition from 50s to 65s. Okay. But she is incredible. Really? Honestly. Like on a 50, she would go to like club standard races and win against all the lads. Oh, wow. She is like, you know, when you just watch someone and you can just, just, it's amazing what she's doing at such a young age. Yeah. Coupled with the fact that you don't see many girls riding, especially at that age. And, yeah. And We've... sort of sticking it to the lad sort of thing. So, Olivia, how, how old is she? She's 10 now. 10, okay. Yeah. So cool. definitely a, a rider to, a unique rider, obviously being a girl. And yeah. Some of this, she's just got so much confidence in herself when she's riding. And how long has she been riding on the bike, do you know? So I met her in 2018. Yeah, she'd never raced at that point. Um, not really been on the bike that long. Wow. Um, and she's yeah, we just did some sessions. She's always been gutsy, like fast, but she was like arms and legs everywhere. And yeah, yeah. once we got a bit of technique into Olivia, she was absolutely ripping. And it's not just me that says this. You, you, if you speak to other people that have seen a ride, they, yeah. you just can't believe it. Like some of the stuff she does when she's on, having a day, she's she absolutely launches the jumps. She'll have a go at anything. You know, it's it's un- unbelievable. So wow, very cool. How did here? I suppose. And she's just Olivia gone Reynolds. up to sixty five. She's on a sixty five. She's now. on sixty five now. And guess who helps her? Callum Swan. No way. Sweaty, yeah. Callum's that guy. Wow, yeah, that's cool. He's, he's willing to help. What's and he's the always in the picture? So for people, we we should touch on on this because I know Callum's your friend, but he also runs his own business as well. Yeah. So his business is called Works Financial Services. He is supporting me again. Yep. Um, going into this year, he's, he's obviously supported me even before he had his business. Yeah. Like we've talked about, he's, he supported me as a friend and all these contacts that he builds and this, that, that and the other. But yeah, Works Financial Services, for the past three years or so, he, he has supported my racing. And I know a few people use him for insurance purposes and a few other things, don't they? So it's, yep. he, he's built quite a good reputation within um, motocross, That's actually, as well as helping people, he's actually providing services for him as well. Yeah, exactly that. It is a, a very well-liked person. Just, you know, if you, if you have a chat with him and get to know him at the track and stuff, you'll absolutely wet your pants because he's that sort of person. <laughs> you know, he's so very confident in himself, happy chappy. Um, he talks to anyone. But like you say, he is selling insurance to motocross riders. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's always found this way to be involved with the sport. But and he's I, very I think, successful in that as well. I think that's cool that, Okay, yeah, he's he's uh he's selling insurance and you know to motocross, but even way before he was doing that, he was helping. Yeah, because of that passion. Like anyone, you know yourself, you get involved with riding. Uh, as soon as you swing your leg over the bike for the first time, and you like it, you're in it. Ah, oh, we we talked about it. I mean, that's yeah. how MX Vice. You know, I, I talk about it all, all the time. Addicted to motocross because exactly. that's why Vice yeah. is Vice, and and that's exactly the same. It's thing. an addiction. Same thing with Callum. He is an okay rider. He was never going to do anything, as in... I can relate reach, to that, Callum. Yeah, reach a high level. But he knew me, and he knew I was capable. Yeah. And he enjoyed aiding me to get to that level. And he has. 
That's very and, cool. And we're both, you know, we're great friends. He's proud, obviously, of what we've done together. I'm forever thankful for what we've done together. And like throughout this whole um, chat that we've had, he keeps propping up yep. because he's there. Yeah. And, and some people, like, don't get me wrong, some people, he's quite active on social media or he has been before he had this business. And, you know, some people see him as a, it's a bit of a love-hate thing. Some people love him. Some people used to not necessarily like him too much. But you can say that for absolutely everyone. Oh, I've and, and he, haters, and he, won't, about he won't mind me saying that. Yeah. But he's matured you, and he's, he's in business now. And his approach is a little bit more different, if you like. And, you know, most people that meet Callum really like him. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And fortunately in life, you're, you're going to rub some people up the wrong, wrong way. way. I certainly yeah. have. In, but, yeah. you know, if so, you know, I wanted to get MX Vice to, to where it is now in some people don't like that so yeah. what can you do you can only control the things that you're in control of so going back to the coaching yeah you've obviously got Olivia Reynolds who mentioned uh, coming through so, so how many I mean I don't want to go into the depths of the business I'm not going to ask you how much you yeah. charge uh, no, what do you no. call it and the rest of it but um, so, so how many sort of riders do you work with per week um, on, on so average sort of thing? yeah so say for instance during the winter now tracks are most of them are shut yep. and stuff but I'm out every Wednesday every Saturday and Sunday I do quite a lot of one-to-one stuff, which I know a lot of these obviously academies, established academies, don't offer because they've got these yeah. big groups and stuff. So around when it, things are a bit quieter, there's a bit more one-to-one. Average week, I'd probably have three to ten people, depending if I do the odd two-to-one okay. or. And are they regular people? Yeah, I've got a, a few regulars. There's a lad called we call him Balf, um, Reese Balfour. Yeah, he's with me every weekend. Um, another little, uh, not little lad, he's on a 250F, but Ozzie Murray, he's out with me most Wednesdays. So I've got, like say, a, a small group of sort of regulars. Yeah. Um, but then obviously during the holidays and all them sort of stuff, like the break from the school terms, like I, I have these hire days and we get sometimes 20 people. That's cool. Per hire. So yeah. Some, like a, a steady week, it's just three decent days, probably around six, five, six riders. Sometimes during like a holiday when I hire a track and I probably do that twice during the week, I can have 40, 50 people during a week. Wow. So okay. it's, yeah, it's, it's well established. So at the, uh, I mean, all, all different level riders and not necessarily race or, or whatever, but is there a rider who you've kind of worked with who you've seen like from, you know, a massive progress? Like no, no matter on, we're not talking results, but kind of getting on a bike to where they are now. Is there like riders where you've just seen, you know, think, geez, I, I knew like I could help them, but I didn't realize they were capable of, of that. Is there some people what have kind of shocked you or are people who have, you work with or you've just been immensely proud of? Yeah, so obviously I mentioned Olivia. Obviously coming to me without any racing experience and <clears throat> all the rest of it to progressing really quickly. And there's like mainly the younger riders. So there's some 65 riders that have done the same. Okay. Um, but I, I don't know, something about these 50cc riders, it's just being able to get some technique to the, into them at a young age. As soon as you've got that technique, you're running the bike correctly, the speed just follows straight away. So I'd say, yeah, there's, there's a good few people where I've seen that, the progression, you know, and if they're willing to spend enough time with me, yeah, we're going to move forward. That's as cool. simple as that. That's cool. So, and yeah. do you, as well as the money, obviously money helps because that enables you to have a bit of a future. But I'm, I'm guessing 
you seem like you kind of a bit of a smile on your face when you start talking about some of these riders and you're obviously getting something back as well as the money. Yeah, well, it's not. It isn't all about money. Like say, money, it has to be there. Yeah. It's just one of them things. Wish it wasn't. A lot of us probably wish it wasn't. But I just enjoy my days. Cool. Um, it's as simple as that. With some, like you say, with the younger riders, they're, they're quite cheeky sometimes and they, they make you laugh and it just gives you an excuse to just be that kid again. But like you say, seeing progression, it doesn't matter if it's a five-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old. Because like I say, it's not just kids that yeah. I work with. I do a lot of the adult stuff and um, of all levels, like complete novices, right up to expert level. Um, I was working with a lad called Billy Wynn, who's again not been riding that long, only a few years, but he does the MX Nationals in the youth class and he's yep. been making some big strides and stuff. So, you know, I talk about the kids a lot because they just make me laugh. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, they're just good vibes all the time. But yeah, anyone I spend a day with, um, if I see some progress, which we obviously do, that's my job, um, they leave the track absolutely buzzing. You get a nice message when you get home. Thanks for today. Like, really yeah. happy or. I always say, keep me posted on your race at the weekend. If we're training on a Wednesday, they're racing at the weekend. Let me know how the, the race went and you get a nice message Sunday night. Worked on the things we're doing. Best result I've ever had. That just gives you that nice feeling. Yeah. I get that okay. from, uh, I don't know if you've met my colleague, Lewis Phillips. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I get that from him because um, obviously he was, uh, I can't say that word, can I? Um, I'm banned from saying that word. <laughs> so Lewis is very special. And, you know, that's I, a nice word. But it'd be quite nice if he sent me a message, like, and said, you know, thanks for everything you do. Yeah. You know, I can even speak to people at some point, and now I can. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Lewis, if you listen back on this, then maybe you should send me a message and just say, hey, yeah, you're great. <laughs> Tosser. We're in a new year now. You never yeah, know. Yeah, you never know. It might work. So, 19, I think, uh, you know, that's where I kind of bummed into you. Seen Callum yep. said hello, said, you know, shit luck because it was going quite well at yeah. Matley and 2019 season you switched to Yamaha I believe from KTM is that correct? That's correct yeah yeah. so we had a, a really good 2018 season podiums this that and the other for whatever I don't know the ins and outs but all of a sudden Yam was on the cards like that was the way we're going yeah and, and was that help from Yamaha UK? Yeah so Yam they offered something good to be fair yeah you know and yeah, it's an opportunity. It's hey? an opportunity. You, you, you go for it. Yeah. yeah. And and I was still with Matt at this time. He'd worked all the costs out and actually going Yam would take the pressure off massively because they've got good suspension on them already. Okay. KYB. And, you know, it, it kind of made sense. So we did that. And um, my plan was to do the MX2 British Championship. Yep. They put an EMX limit age limit now so that wasn't an option for me yeah which was a kick in the nads yeah and that was quite early on wasn't it that in was the, early on yeah. yeah so then we we thought right well let's get a 450 and do some races on that as well okay. mx nationals and then at least if we go to a gp enter mx1 yeah obviously i can't enter mx2 either. no that was my only option so that's what we decided on and what i found quite early on with the transition is the yamaha 450 really suited me Okay. So I was riding that predominantly through the winter time just because the tracks were wet and all that sort of stuff, take the stress off the 250. And I've become very comfortable on that bike. On um, the Yamaha? Was this Yamaha and it being a 450 or just yeah, Yamaha? Yeah. I mean, when I look at things, I was I, it was the right decision to go back to a 250, try something new. It allowed me to do the EMX. Never changed that. But as a rider, how I ride, I'm not in a 
really aggressive rider. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have always said that to me. I'm the sort where you, you'd watch me and you're kind of thinking, well, try it then. Do you know what I mean? Sort of thing. <laughs> but I think that's just because of A lot of people body say position. that to me as well. Yeah, body positioning and stuff. I, I'm, I don't know. But 450 maybe suits me just that little bit more. Yeah. Overall. So, yeah, just got gelled with it straight away. Obviously, I'd come off of a good 250. That KTM was good. Yeah. Strong engine. Carl Anderson cast on the suspension. We haven't spoke about that. Um, separation from SPS. We don't need to. But it's like I went to cast and that actually helped me. So okay. He unlocked the next level of feeling comfortable on a bike. Just That's through cool. his, you know, how the riders have been working with and his experience. But that's that's a big story in so, itself. So you're working with Carl Anderson, Cass? Yeah, uh, from the halfway from, through 2018. Is that a particular brand of, of suspension as well? He was working on the same components, same WP, um, cone valve stuff that we had in it. Yep. But yeah, it seemed like when he got his hands on the bike and put some up different settings in and stuff, I got, I got the podiums after that. Cool. So that, yeah, just one of them things. Yeah. But obviously always thankful for SPS what they did. I just felt like I needed something a bit more now. Yeah. And Carl was the man. So yeah, there we go with that one. So yeah, 450 was good as a standard bike. You can't complain the bike's not quick enough. It's yeah. 450 at the end of the day. But we hopped on the 250 and straight away I had like panic alarms in my head because this bike was nowhere near the speed and like power of my KTM. And the season was approaching fast. My original plan was to do Hawkson International on the 450. Yeah. Um, that bike went wrong on the Thursday before. Something happened, gearbox or whatever. So we jumped on the 250. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to put it in a race situation, see where we're at. And um, yeah, that was, that was tough for me because I was getting passed up Hawkstone Hill by like a bike that shouldn't be. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, like, yeah. Uh, it wasn't running very well. And like, I just thought I've put extra work into this year. Like, I've looked at everything. How can I improve? How can I improve? Tommy Sell, I was gym training with him pretty much every day that I could around work. Obviously, he's on a full-time basis. Yeah. Whenever I could join in with him, he was 10 minutes down the road from me, I would go and train with him. Morning and afternoon. He was training twice a day. Wow. Serious stuff. Um, what, Tommy trains twice a day? Yeah. You wow, believe. I don't even Tommy think he so even said in. that on the podcast. Yeah, Tommy, definitely going into last year, he was pushing hard. Like He paid for a program and I, he said, do you want to join it with me? Because he was happy to train with someone. Yeah. And I was the only one daft enough to do it with him. <laughs> so we did, uh, we did that, yeah. And I was, I was training super hard, this, that, and the other. And then I left Hawkstone International like, wow. Okay. <laughs> I can't do anything on this. Not Yamaha. No. I can't do anything on this bike. No. So the, the bike needed to be changed to suit the way you yeah. wanted to ride it. Yeah, it just needed some power. Yeah. That's the other, you know, it needed to be on the level of the, what I was riding the year before, which we was told would happen. Yeah. I'm not going to drop names and stuff, but it just didn't materialize. So I'm panicking and trying to reason with people after the event to say, look, the Maxis is two weeks away. What are we going to do? Yeah. You know, and this is where obviously things didn't happen the way it should have done in 19. And there's a bit of a breakdown in relationship within the team. And so it's such a long and hard story to talk about because I've got a lot of respect for obviously Matt and what he did with this EMX and stuff. Yeah. But there's pressures. There's pressures from everywhere um, that that happened. So two weeks later at the British Championship, the best option for me was a completely stop Yamaha 250 with okay. a pipe on it. And it, you remember that race. Like, it was an Enduro, wasn't it? 
So yeah, it, I, it wasn't the be all and end all. No, no, it was it was literally it was a battle survival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was just uh, I don't know. I just couldn't get it out of my head like how prepared I am and what I'd done the previous year to build all this confidence up. And then again, I'm I'm not in a confident state of mind yeah. because I know that I'm not on the same equipment as everyone else. And it, yeah, I don't know. How did I react in the time? I fought fairly, but I don't know. Just putting pressure on to we've got we're in this situation and we're going to fix it. Yeah, because I'm that sort of person. I put yeah. so much into it. I invest so much time, effort to be on a standard bike, and it's not anyone's. It's not Matt's fault. Nope. At the end of the day, it's it's just a combination of things, and we we didn't have a competitive bike. So for me, my confidence was was quite low. Um, but whatever. So on the 450, when I was went to the MX Nationals, finished second overall behind Kulas. You know, wow. I was happy on that bike. Yeah, and then. We always had the intention of doing a GP. So Matt Lee Basin, why would we not give that a go? We did that. And it, it was going all right. It was like pre-practice. Where was I? Out of 38 riders or something, I was probably like 31st or something. And the class Riding. was stacked. Yeah, it's a GP at the end of yeah. the day, isn't it? But, but the I top, rode, top 20 in, in that G, yeah. in the GP now is is crazy. Yeah. I rode, I rode, I just remember really, really nervous, rode tight. Then we went out for the qualifying session. I went to like 28, 29, or 27. I don't know. But it was an improvement. It was good. And then the qualifying race came up. Not the best of starts, but I remember just making some passes on the first lap, avoiding some crashes. I found myself in 15th. I was obviously super excited. Kulas found his way past me, and I hung on to him a little bit. And then Brian Bogus, Factory HRC, he passed me. Didn't sort of ruffle my feathers. I was happy. I was sort of following him for a few laps. Yeah. And I was comfortable. I was like 17th or 18th at this time. And I feel like that was me for the race. I was good. I had a little gap behind me. I was happy. And I just come around this right and turn. Didn't feel like I did anything different from previous laps with the front wheel. Just lost grip. Put my foot on the floor. Broken ankle. Um, halfway through that race or whatever. Damn. You know. and, and yeah, injuries happen. I've been quite, other than the neck and I've had a few, the ACL thing. I've been quite lucky with injuries. But yeah, broken ankle. Um, already quite low about racing the start in of general the year, yeah. and how it started off and stuff and vibes within the team and all that sort of stuff so the, the break actually did me good to get away from it in a weird, weird way yeah but yeah so I, had to, I let, that, let that heal unfortunately I come back I don't feel like I rushed but I had a little incident at a track I come up short on the jump and compensated so I took weight off one ankle put it on the other yeah actually broke the bone in that as well so literally last year you, you managed to Break both ankles. Yeah, managed to break both ankles. And after and GP, anything else, or did you just stop at the two ankles? Well, just before Christmas, I chipped my shoulder. That's another recent injury, right? But yeah, so I didn't. After Matterly, I didn't race a bike for the rest of 2019. Was this just because of injuries, or a little bit because your head wasn't, you know, yeah, happy with? I suppose it, a, bit a bit of a both. combination. Yeah, more so the injuries. Yeah, like I'm not want to shy away from a race if I feel like I'm half ready I'll give it a go mm-hmm. so yeah the, the ankle took a, a while to heal whether it was two months or whatever I can't remember the first time yeah. come back bust the next one that's going to take another six weeks to eight weeks that's another two months before you know it I'm back on the bike with hardly any bike fitness not really prepared and there's only one round left I didn't feel the need to do it yeah you know behind the scenes me and I decided that I wanted to try something different for 2020. Yep. You know, um, going back to this thing, if if the fun's gone and my head's 
probably not where it needs to be because of events that are happening around me. You if need there's to change another up. option, I can change it up. And, yeah. and that option came with Paul. He was a private sponsor at the time, PGVM. PGVM. And racing, and that's, that's 2020 for me. So, so obviously, you've, you've been with Paul Grimshaw um, for a couple of years now as a private sponsor. And, you know, kind of, was there like a conversation which you kind of said that, you know, I want to do something? Or did Paul intimate and say, well, maybe we should do something? Or yeah. how, how did it kind of come about with the, the, the setup this year? Because obviously, you, you, I know you said you needed a change, but did yeah. you kind of get at a dirt bike show and kind of talk to a few people and see where you were? It was throughout the year, really. Um, again, like Matt, brilliant lads, did so much for me. Great, you know, we had a great relationship and stuff. But it was breaking down. Yeah. I'm not going to discuss the reasons for it. You know, I've got my reasons. Matt's got his reason. Sure. Again, in 2020, when I walked past him, I won't ignore him. Yep. We're not at that stage. You know what I mean? I'm yep. going to say hello, whatever. But it just benefited us to go our separate directions. So obviously, while this is happening and I'm making this decision, because ultimately, again, I left. Yeah. my decision. I had the luxury, I don't know if that's the right word, that I could speak to Paul throughout the process. Yeah. And just know that he knew what I knew. He, he could see what I could see yeah. and knew the situation. And he was more than happy to say, right, let's, let's get away from this. It's not working. I can see it's not working. I'm happy to run you myself for 2020. Wow. And then we spoke about it. Obviously, things got a bit more. We got into it more. We discussed things, how it would work, how can we make it work. And it made sense. So that was the time where you just say, let's, let's be positive. Let's do another challenge. Okay, so we're at, you know, 20, 21st of January now. It, how, what's the fitness like? So nothing is simple, is it? So I've got... Ankles more, good? Kind of. Like, yeah. I wouldn't say perfect. Niggling things like if I come heavy on a jump, sometimes it will strain and then I'll be limping all that night and then it will recover. Okay. Because it's in a joint, you've got so many tendons and stuff around it. Yeah. I've, I've never had an injury in a joint, but two broken ankles is not ideal. So they come back to get me sometimes, hold me back. Sometimes I have to rest them up, ice them up, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, like I mentioned just real quickly, like end of October, I came off the bike and I used that time for gym training, get on my program. I'm working with a lad called Sam Yassin now, good bloke, um, with my gym training, planned it all out, solid month off the bike. Yeah. And then, right, December, let's go to Spain. Let's get in some good tracks, good weather, away from all this sort of stuff. Two days in. Bike hits neutral, not the bike's fault, I don't think. It's hard to say it's my own fault. It was like it hit neutral on the backside of a jump. I was nowhere near the gear selector. Just wow. one of them freak things. Yeah. Um, popped into neutral. I didn't realize at the time. I gave it a handful to accelerate away and up a hill. There's no power there. So it just took me straight over the front. Landed super hard on my shoulder. And turns out that I chipped that, chipped my shoulder. And, you know. Damn. But I'd already booked to go... To California yeah. in January the 1st to watch the Supercross with all my friends. Yeah. So I knew the injury wasn't bad. It wasn't like dislocation. It wasn't anything like that. Don't get me wrong. It's given me a lot of pain. But I just set myself. I've got three weeks. What can I do? Work with a physio, work with a massage, get my arm strong enough to ride in California. So that's what I did. Don't get me wrong. The first couple of days riding in California, compensating. It wasn't very strong, being a bit ignorant to it just pushing through still doing 36 minute sessions just, <laughs> just taking it easy then yeah, bud yeah, yeah just kind of thinking i want to go now i'm ready to ride yeah my body isn't but my head that's how i look at things i'm yeah. ready i'm i want to work hard and all this sort of stuff 
compensating and my shoulder's getting better each day, but I'm picking up this pain on my right wrist and I'm like, what now? I've not crashed. I've not overjumped anything. Another two days riding, it's getting worse and worse and worse. But at the end of the trip, I couldn't ride. Not through my left shoulder, but through your wrist. Through my wrist. And I'm like, no. Um, stressed and like got home. I was really annoyed. It kind of ruined the last few days of my holiday. Yeah. I was in a bad mindset. You yeah. Know, I was yeah. constantly getting knocked back. Beautiful tracks. I couldn't ride them. Got back, went to the doctors, looked at it, tendon synvenitis, form of like tendonitis, overuse, you know, of, okay. the, of the tendons in the wrist and the lower forearm. And it kind of makes sense because I rushed back and compensating and loading it up and all that sort of stuff. But I wasn't aware of it at the time. I didn't know it was going to lead on to something else. But obviously that was only a couple of weeks ago. I'm back over here now. Uh, the wrist is getting a little bit better. Are you staying off the bike at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. Got to. A few riders have come forwards. There's a handful of riders that have struggled with a similar injury. Okay. It can't be rushed. It's one of them annoying things. Like if I continue to ride, it's, the tendons are still going to inflame. You know, okay. it's going to restrict. It's probably going to lead to worse things. It's one of them just strange little things that you can't, you just can't rush. So another couple of weeks off the bike. I'm not stressing too hard because the weather we're experiencing at the minute, no one's getting quality no. riding in over no. here. And, and I feel quite fit in myself. And what about training-wise? Are you still keeping up with the training and just not doing much on the wrist? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I've said, I'm, I'll always work around things. I'm not... By, no means am I lazy. So I won't see it as an excuse to just do nothing. I will, I went, yesterday I was on a three hour road cycle. Okay. That's, that's just how I work. If I can work around stuff, and it's probably, it works against me sometimes because I do think I just too much. I wear myself down, I get tired, you know, with, with this coaching and stuff and how much time that takes up, you know, going to the track for the actual coaching day, but then dealing with sometimes 30, 40 people arranging these days. And then I'm still riding and I'm still doing the fitness, you know, I do, I just do everything to my full potential. I, I can relate to that because my full potential has been in McDonald's <laughs> yeah. and, um, and now I'm part of team green. Cause I think you see my bike. Yeah. Factory. Yeah. yeah factory yeah, bike. So, bike. um, yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. Uh, I had a salad. So, um, definitely in training mode at the moment. 20, but, 2020 is going to be the year for you. Oh, 100%. I'm in the Southwest Masters. If anybody wants to come down and watch, uh, <laughs> I will get tickets for friends and family. Um, I think one of the, the things which, you know, is, is come through this podcast is it would be interesting to watch you this year because I think if you can get back to, to being happy and, and gelling with the bike and with the team and have good people around you, then I think we can expect good things. But at the same time, I guess, at the back of your mind, you're probably thinking, I need to get these injuries sorted. Priority is, I've almost told myself, I'm not going to get back on the bike until I am 100% sure that my body's somewhere near. Yeah. Because I can't explain mentally what impact it has of feel like you, you're ready to go forward, you've got your goal, you know where you want to go, you know how hard you have to work, but then you can't. Yeah. Because of another injury's popped up or an old injury is still a problem and you have to rest up. That, that really has a big impact on me. So what I've got to do is look at things a little bit different. Let's get things 100% right. Let's, if I need to do more yoga, if I need to do more stretching, if I need to go and see my physio more, if I need more massage, I'll do it. You know? And I need to take some time off the bike, whether it's another week, another two weeks, another month. It's, it's crap because the first round's in six, seven weeks. Yeah. But what I've learned is... I, I could season. Go, I could, yeah, <laughs> but I could go and ride tomorrow. And, and then my uh, wrist flares back up and then let it sort of recover, try again, 
um, and then it flares up again, and then I've got to actually miss round one. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just trying to be sensible and just, this is my situation. It's not ideal. No. But at the end of the day, I'm not unfit. Like, I'm still feeling quite fit off of the bike. Yep. I've not done a great deal of riding since October. That's fact. You still know how to ride, though. So still know good. how to ride. I know where the <laughs> throttle is. And I know how to do things. Bike fitness is another thing. So, yeah, at some point, I've got to get the hours in like everyone else is. Yeah. But you can't rush it. No. Why am I rushing? More injuries, probably. So what's the, the <clears throat> not the goals, but what, what are the, so are you looking to do the EMX 450 rangs at all this year? Because that's obviously a new, new class which has come in from Europe and I've given your success with an EMX 250 and not having an age restriction there. Is that something that tempts you? Definitely. Um, 100% tempting. Yeah. But like PGVM Paul, we've discussed it. I, I was very upset with what happened at Matterley because it was my first GP and I didn't, I didn't get onto race day. Yeah. So do I do an EMX trying to build myself back up? And then if the EMX goes well, try and do another GP. Yep. Potentially. Um, I mean, Matterley looks like he's yeah, way happen. too early. Yeah. yeah. I'm not ready for that. Cause I haven't raced since Matterley last year, March. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I sat Paul down and, and we had a chat and we said, is it an option for me to do a round of the GPs this year? If, if everything's good, if I'm up to pace and, it's the, it's a sensible thing. And he said, yeah, we'll do it. So I know that's there for me. Yeah. I just need to be confident. I need to remember what it's like to race and remember what it's like to be pushing good results before I even consider that. So British Championship is going to be your number one yeah. sort of focus. And then is it just, are you going to commit to another series or are you just going to pick and choose? Yeah, so I'm going to do the, the British Championship, um, obviously MX1, and then the British Masters. Cool. They're the two championships. Okay. And like, I love racing and I would like to do the third. Yep. Uh, MX Nationals. But coaching, like the way it's built up and the people that I'm sort of working with and how many I'm working with and building this up in the background, I need some spare weekends. Yeah. Because I can't turn my back on it. No. I, and one, I love it and it's going to be the there. Yeah. The income. <laughs> and it's going to be there. I've got some good plans for it when the racing's finished. So, yeah, just getting that balance and it's, it's a tough balance. Nah, that's good. Well, it's really good to listen to your insights. It's really good to um, learn way more about you. And um, yeah, I hear loads of these Chinese whispers and stuff like you, as you do within the industry. And it's really good to like you know to speak to you and to find out exactly you know what what the, not the truth is because it's not about that. It's it's about who you are as a person. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in twenty uh, twenty. I hope these injuries literally go away quite quickly. And um, it'd be great to get you back on the podcast um, throughout the year. Yeah, 100% enjoy my time here. And like I say, it's, um, it's just nice to be able to talk about it and sort of round the career up, up to now. And it brings back some good memories as well. So I really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me and um, appreciate that. And I'd definitely be interested in getting back on with you. Excellent. Good luck for 2020. Thank you very much. Liat, protecting riders from head to toe. Check out liat.com for more. You are listening to the British Motocross Show. British Motocross Show.